the Televerse podcast from Pop Optic TV. P-O-P-O-P-T-I-Q.com. Comedy, reality, drama, genre, and what's in between. Covering anything that's interesting. Geek out on television, so much to see. So Peak TV kills us all. Current retro, upcoming TV talk every week. Let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse Pop Optics TV podcast. This is Kate Kolzik, a TV editor of popoptics.com, and I'm joined this week from the AV Club and Debating Doctor Who by Mr. Alistair Wilkins. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, very glad to be here. It's uh, this is uh, this should be good. I'm excited. Yeah, we got uh, we got a lot of TV to talk about. Um, I, I've learned it's been a learning curve for me with the fabulous guest co-hosts I've been able to have uh, over the past uh, month two months and one of the things I've learned is I should not have a lengthy opening section where we talk about the recent news um, in TV because then we go for two hours and nobody wants that so all I'm gonna say up here at the top is to ask uh, is there anything that's really stood out to you this week in in TV what is your like what is your TV world right now Oh man, I mean, my my TV world, as I think we'll be we'll be getting to later, is well. I mean, all the I mean, obviously, all the shows are coming back, and for for you know, as an AV clubber, that means the shows that I review are coming back, which means that my wallet is getting a little bigger, not a lot bigger, but a little bigger than it <laughs> used to. And uh, particularly, um, I have to admit, the return of um, Arrow, which I do review, and The Flash, which I don't review, is one of the more exciting things uh, for me. Um, I'm very tired of superhero storytelling on the big screen, but I am actually really enjoying it on the small screen. So I think that's kind of the big thing. I don't know whether there has there been any sort of big news, like, like the sort of all the crazy news that I'm seeing at the moment has to do with um, various football coaches at USC schools being either fired or retiring unexpectedly. So I'm like television seems fairly banal by comparison. Sports seems to be winning the craziness battle at the moment. Fair enough, though. I will uh, say I was very pleasantly surprised this week when Halden Catchfire got renewed because I did not expect that to happen. And I was a big fan of season two uh, of that. So yay for uh, yay for bringing back creatively interesting shows that are like you can't even say on the bubble, like so far below the bubble that it doesn't even really matter. Um, but hey, we get more pretty things next year, so I'm excited about that. It's nice to know that AMC has room to support like one like just prestige show at this point. Mm-hmm. I think like I I mean I know, like Better Call Saul is sort of in that nice um you know middle ground between uh it gets a decent amount of viewers and gets a really good amount of reviews uh, or really positive reviews. Walking Dead obviously gets just just bonkers numbers, just like world defying numbers and reviews that I know get better every season, but I don't think it's ever going to be thought of in quite that same way. So um it is it's good to know that it sort of seemed like AMC was going to just coast off the Mad Men Breaking Bad vibes for a long time. So I this feels like a very positive step to turn around. And- and renew something like Halt and Catch Fire. Yeah, it certainly uh, makes, especially, I'm, we're not going to talk about it on the podcast, uh, The Walking Dead premiere, because there's a separate Pop Optic Walking Dead podcast for that, that I am also on, that should be out either already or soon in everyone's feeds who subscribe to this um, over at Pop Optic. So uh, we're not going to talk about it here, but it is a very strong premiere. And so it, it just sort of sweetens the conversation for me a little bit more to know that not only is The Walking Dead doing very well in the ratings and uh, uh, also doing well creatively, but it is able to then support other creative uh, and interesting shows that haven't yet found an audience that 
maybe somehow they will. I'd, I'm always optimistic, more optimistic than I should be with these things. But uh, but yeah, certainly having all of that, uh, th- I'm having very uh, happy vibes towards uh, AMC right now. I'd be curious to know, and I don't know whether anyone's ever done this, is like actually working out how much show A can sort of subsidize shows B, C, and D. Like I it just – I don't know exactly how you'd find the data like or just whether it would be more like actually just talking to the executives and getting their thought process. But I think – you know, it's something that I think is generally sort of known among us people who are sort of nerdy about TV that certainly like if you've got a show like Walking Dead, um, it's easier to justify the continuation of a show that is really not getting the numbers because, you know, it, I mean, HBO is very famously has that kind of model, but they're always a different thing because they're, they're, you know, uh, paying you know, your subscription. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But um, if someone hasn't written that, I'd be very curious to see it sort of reported out at some point because i think it, i think it'd be worth understanding like just any anything that raises our understanding of like the economics of television is something that i'm a big fan of because i think it just it's something that i really wish people who are sort of like medium level conversant about tv had a better sense of when they're sort of complaining about show x getting canceled or show y getting renewed Mm-hmm. Well, listeners, fill us in. Let us know if there if that article already exists, because I'm sure if it does, there's a listener or two out there who's yelling at their podcasting device at the moment saying it was in fill in the blank website. Um, and if it's oh, not fill in the blank website is a fantastic are, aren't publication. They great? I read it regularly. They've they've really come along since their editorial crisis. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're doing really good work. I'm a big fan of vital fill in the blank vital work yep. over there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let us know. <laughs> but for now, uh, let's take a break and let's, let's get to this week in TV because uh, we're going to talk about fewer shows than the insane show list that was last week. Alistair, last week we talked about 24 shows. That's that's crazy. I. I mean, like, I'll admit, you know, for someone who is a TV reviewer and so at least in theory, like paid to know things about TV, like I do watch less TV than the sort of average person in that category because frankly, I'm a grad student and I have a very busy schedule and I just don't have the time to watch a ton of shows um, because it's just not my primary thing that I do. Um, But that just, I can't even imagine holding 24 thoughts in your head about 24 different shows at the same time. So my hat is off to you and yet I also back away. (laughs) So we won't be doing that this week, listeners. Yeah. Never you fear, but we will be having, uh, that will will give us more of an opportunity to have a bit more in-depth chat on on a few shows. So later in the show, we'll be talking about uh, the, the UK series Life on Mars, not the ABC remake. Shockingly enough, Alistair, you didn't want to talk about the remake. No, for some reason. Yeah. Um, but for now, let's take a break and we'll come back with our week in TV. week in reality and comedy unfortunately we will not be talking about the i'm sure delightful premiere of jane the virgin or the pilot of crazy ex-girlfriend neither of which i have seen and i don't know if you have alistair but we don't get cw screeners over here at pop optic so we will be talking about those i will be talking about those next week and i will be watching them after we finish recording <laughs> uh but uh also next starting up this week uh, Nathan, for you on Comedy Central is coming back with, I'm sure, another fantastic season. And Truth Be Told is starting up on NBC. But that is all talk for next week. This week, I'm going to be kicking things off with a little talk about the Great British British Bake Off, which had its uh, a Series 6 finale over in the UK uh, this, this past week. 
Uh, we have, I'm going to talk a little bit about You're the Worst, We Can Do Better Than This, and then you're going to take the reins a little bit with Gravity Falls, Dipper and Mabel versus The Future, and Bob's Burgers, The Land Ship was this week's episode, but we'll also talk about last week's episode, Sliding Bobs. Um, then Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Boyle's Hunch, as well as, again, a little talk of the season so far. And we'll round things out with The Muppets, Bear Left, then Bear, what, Bear Right. And then uh, Daily Show with Trevor Noah and Stephen Colbert, just sort of a more loose conversation about how those two shows are doing, the two most recent sort of trade-offs in, in late night. Um, so that will round out... Uh, our, our week in reality and comedy, but I needed to kick things off with the Great British Bake Off because are you are you a cooking show person, Alistair? I I'm not. I've got to plead general uh, apathy about reality shows or co- competition shows in general. Like it's one of those things that other people get them and are into them. Um, it, they just have never done. I think they. I always find them just too overproduced, too slickly edited. I just so not my not the bag that I'm into. But I am very curious to hear what it does for you. Well, if you're not into slick, overproduced shows, then The Great British Bake Off is your starter drug because this show is amazing. And one, <laughs> I feel very strongly about the show. I love the show. It's probably right now, at least, it's my favorite, uh, my favorite cooking competition show ever. And I don't say that lightly because I love with a fiery passion, the original iron chef um, subtitles and all uh, or orb dubbing, I should say and all. Um, But, but the great British bake off, what it gets right. that so many other shows don't get, don't get quite right. And it's the same thing that I really love about the original iron chef as well, is that there, there isn't prize money at the end. If you win, you get a cake plate that says Great British Bake Off, and they say, congrats, you win. Um, but this is a cooking competition among amateur bakers in the UK, and the the tone of it could not be further from um, so many of the other cooking competition shows that or baking competition shows that I love. Like I, I Top Chef, I've watched, I believe, all of Top Chef and all of its incarnations. Um, and, and chopped and lots of other cooking and baking shows, but there's always, um, it, on so many of these reality competition shows, the way that the shows build stakes is by trying to raise the prize money and raise the, um, you know, what this, the notion of what winning could do for someone, it'll let them open their own restaurant. It'll let them, you know, they, they're in debt from school and it'll pay that off or they've, they're supporting a family or they build these really, um, intense dialogue or, or conversations amongst the, the, the contestants over or the chef doesn't sometimes over who needs the money most. And so then it just makes it artificially, well, I guess not artificially, it does build the stakes so that everything is life or death and, and everybody becomes very emotional. They keep, you know, they ply them with booze so that we'll have huge breakdowns. But on Great British Bake Off, everyone who's competing is competing because they love to bake. And because uh, it would be fun and for pride, that's it. There's like, there's your, if you lose, because it isn't high stakes to win, if you lose, it isn't crushing. It's just like, oh, this was fun. I'm going to miss it. That's it. Uh, So it's just this wonderfully welcoming and warm show. And that was very much uh, like this finale this week was hugely indicative of that because you had three chefs and the final challenges were really straightforward. It was make, make ice buns. And then it was make this, um, Oh, 
a pastry something tort with raspberries uh, for the technical challenge. And then it was bake a three-tier cake and make it taste amazing. And normally they go for these much more over-the-top, insane final challenges. But here it's just you're watching these people make what are apparently delicious, delicious cakes. But getting to know a bit about them, um, getting, you know, to, seeing their true understanding and mastery of baking and what it means to them and to their families and where and 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 then just sort of watching them get to enjoy the experience and because there's such inherent uh drama in cooking and in baking specifically anyways like when they have to just make a uh a souffle like they did in the penultimate episode of the season it, anything could go like you look at that souffle the wrong way and it's gonna fall. You don't need to do anything to goose the uh, the energy of it or to to raise the stakes because when you're baking, it's too late to fix anything. You can't like fix it at the last minute. Either it's good or it's bad once you've put it in the oven. And so there's they already know that there's enough stakes there. So they they just instead focus on the people, focus on the challenges. It, the show also functions a bit as an educational program about baking. Um, and the, the histories of some of these different dishes in, in the UK. But um, it's just a fantastic show. The judging is very good. They have a blind round, which is a fantastic way of keeping uh, of keeping it out of um, feeling from feeling too like manipulated based on the product who the producers want to win. Um, so the judges don't know who's baked what. So therefore, you can kind of trust what they're saying a bit more. And then the the, the presenters are also fantastic. So um, yeah, it's just it's a wonderful show. I got choked up listening to it what listening to these some of these chefs talk about what the experience has meant to them, how it's helped them build their self confidence. And, and, you know, one of the, the one of the people who competed uh, who in the finale, I don't I'm not gonna say who won in case people are behind I haven't seen it yet over here. Um, talks about how she's a stay-at-home mom and one of the other contestants in the finale is a stay-at-home dad and how this sort of let them get out of the house and show that they can do stuff um, as well as they love taking care of their kids, but they always think of their sphere as just like something they're constantly supporting their family. So to watch them experience doing something purely for themselves is just, it's really lovely. So I was getting choked up by the finale. It was a well, very well done finale. Um, and everybody should watch The Great British Bake Off. If you have not seen it, you know, you can watch The Great British Baking Show is the retitling they've done for PBS. They're a few seasons behind, but the show is amazing and everyone should watch it. And I don't know that I've sold you because you're not a cooking show person, Alistair, but uh, if you ever, like, decide you're curious about uh, reality uh, cooking shows, this is the one to check out. Well, I respect the passion that you have brought to this. Um, and also I was sort of – as I was looking this up, um, you mentioned um, – I mean you mentioned all aspects of it being something that you like. Um, and I am uh, – as my name perhaps implies, I am of British stock. So first of all, I will say the idea that a lack of stakes is somehow not going to make it crushing. I think you're greatly underestimating the uh, British middle class ability to humiliate oneself and to feel humiliated at the drop of a hat. Um, so losing face is a is a serious uh thing to lose here but um the other thing is uh the presenters am i right in thinking they're mel gidrick and sue perkins are yes. those the two presenters yeah i've seen them on um a lot of british panel shows they're both regulars on that circuit and that's something that i do watch uh stuff like would i lie to you uh qi um the occasional have i got news for you so i have seen them i know they they were they have been a double act in a whole book 
things, including their own show that I've not seen. But um, I can believe that they would be hosting a very good, very supportive, very welcoming kind of uh, reality uh, cooking competition, whatever um, show. So baking excuse me, not cooking, baking. Um, so, um, you know, uh, it's not, it's not, as I say, it's not quite the bag that I'm into, but this definitely seems like the closest that I would be able to get, um, with, with, you know, in this realm. So, um, seems, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, at some point, everyone else over here will have seen it. I know that there's a few listeners out there and, and certainly some friends of the show who are also big Great British Bake Off fans. So I'm sure there's like two people listening who are just, yeah, we'd go. The show's amazing. And everybody else is just sort of flummoxed as to why I'm still talking about it. But I wanted to give it some airtime here. Um, I also wanted to give some airtime to You're the Worst. We can do better than this, which is an interesting episode and um, one that, again, like a couple of their episodes this season had just it, it's a really fun comparatively lighthearted episode you think it's playing with a handful of of sitcom tropes and then you get to the end and, and they throw again just a gut punch to you at the very end as we see uh Gretchen heading out and we still don't know where she's been going where she's been leaving the apartment the house to go um but now we know that that Jimmy knows that she's been doing this and so to add this this like layer of dread and really very like seriousness underneath what has been such a fun and uh delightful cohabitation this season between the central couple um is really very uh it's it's a it's an interesting move and i think it's it's working really well so far and i can't wait to see though i don't want it to to see how it pays off because i just don't want i don't want Gretchen and Jimmy to get you know really broken up or have bad things happen to either of them uh, so I'm very nervous and I know you don't watch this show so I'm going to keep this just kind of cut this off here but I'm still really engaged and enjoying uh, You're the Worst and their uh, you know their improv comedy thing that they do here I think it's fun I hope we get more with that with Edgar and I continue to love everything they're doing with Lindsay but uh, yeah I, again, I'll have to wait until my next guest co-host who watches the show, um, and, and then just we'll just talk about nothing but you're the worst when that happens. Uh, but everyone, again, if you like sitcoms or deconstructions of them, you're the worst on FXX, having a fantastic uh, second season. I want to move on to our next show, though, and that's Gravity Falls, Dipper and Mabel versus the Future. Now, this is a show that we, Simon and I, were covering week to week um, back until uh, about the midway point of last season and then we got it, it went on a hiatus and we got away from it um but you're a big fan of this series so how is how is the last half of, of the past previous season and this season working for you i guess it's the same season still isn't it so okay so in theory uh this is the most hilarious okay so so the first season premiered in june of 2012 it was the very first june 15th 2012 was i believe the premiere or uh, yeah, or June 29th, I think, after a special preview. Point is, um, that was the very first review I ever wrote for the AV Club was a Gravity Falls review, and then it ultimately turned into the one of the first shows that I was covering on a regular basis. That first season ran from June of 2012 to August of 2013. That was one season, and now this current season has run from August of 2014 to October of 2015 with no particular end in sight. So the seasons are completely arbitrary and there are massively long hiatus. Well, so 
and you say the seasons, but it's not just the seasons. It's what day is it going to air? What time is it going to air? On which channel will it air? It, it, yeah. I mean, this is a thing where um, it is one of the ruder reminders that as much as it has obviously a big adult following, um, it is a show that is still predominantly made for preteens and Disney XD um, believes that it can, which is the primary channel that it airs on now because it moved over from Disney Channel to XD this year. Um, that they can kind of just air whenever they want and preteens will find it because preteens watch the same – like I think the preteens and old people like watch TV in exactly the same way, which is they have like their three channels that they like and they stick with them so they don't have to like worry about losing people. Apparently is the theory. I don't know whether like that's actually reflected in, in the ratings or not or whether you can even like use ratings to judge a show that's predominantly aired at a younger audience. But um, but yeah, I mean like in terms of like how the season has been been going, how season two has been going in general, um, you know, I think that it is uh, definitely right up there among, you know, when we're talking about this kind of golden age of um, children's animated television or whatever exact term you want to use, if not children's. But I mean, this, along with your Adventure Times, your Steven Universes, um, I know that there's like 15 other shows that people could could be throwing out there, but I think this is right there at the top of the heap. I think that in general, this season has done a good job in dealing with some of the sort of key structural issues that was holding the show back in season one. I mean, the, the the big one has always been um, uh, Dipper's unrequited crush for Wendy um, and because it was a completely unresolvable plot line. Like there was no way that you can like have a 12-year-old and an extremely tall like 14 or 15-year-old like be paired up in a way that makes any sort of sense. Like it's just – it doesn't work visually. It's not something that you can cheat um, and it would be just gross. So um, – they couldn't do it and it was just this thing where it's like it ended up like taking Wendy who's voiced by Linda Cardellini who's a great actress, a great voice actress, um, a great presence and like often just sort of quarantining her in either not appearing at all or in very kind of go nowhere subplots because she couldn't properly interact with the main character. So um, resolving that and, and bringing her much more uh, directly into the, the storytelling has been a real boon for the show. They still don't use her a lot. She's still definitely the fifth most important of the five main characters. Um, but there was a good one uh, – I, I was about to say a couple weeks ago and of course I mean a couple episodes ago, which is to say September 7th, which actually isn't <laughs> bad by Gravity Falls standards. Um, but it was the the last Mabel corn, which involves uh, Mabel being sent along with some of her um, female friends, including Wendy, to go retrieve a unicorn hair from an extremely annoying uh, persnickety unicorn. And there's a great point where um, Mabel is being told that she's not pure of heart by this unicorn, goes to exorbitant lengths to prove that she is pure of heart when this doesn't work. Um, uh, Wendy just says uh, basically some, something to the effect of like – you know, we're not we're not angels, we're women and just like starts like just tearing crap up and like destroying things. And it's just sort of a great uh, moment. It works really well in in context as this sort of uh, just like thing of like, let's just unleash chaotic destruction and get what and take what we want. Um, it's a it's a great uh, moment for her and very, very true to her character. So it's, it's, it's nice that they've been able to sort of activate that. They've sort of just been playing with the levels of a lot of the characters. Like I think that um, Seuss was definitely the sort of breakout character of the first season i think they were sort of reaching peak seuss at a certain point and they're like and then they sort of realized okay we can actually like uh go back to using him in slightly smaller doses um so that i think has been a good thing and then um you know leading up uh bringing in jk simmons uh as uh 
Grunkle Stan's long lost identical twin, ex- identical except for an extra finger on both of his hands, uh, brother, um, revealing that the the Stan we know is Stan Lee Pines and the J.K. Simmons is his Stanford Pines, um, which may or may not have just been a way of resolving a continuity error from the first season where he was called both names at different points, um, has been a really great thing. I mean, J.K. Simmons, obviously, he just won the Oscar for Whiplash, but he also has a long, long, long history of great voice acting. Um, Legend of Korra. Uh, he is in a lot of Justice League episodes as General Eiling. Um, I know he's done a bunch of other stuff. I mean, he voiced J. Jonah Jameson as well as playing him on screen, obviously. So um, he, again, has been uh, a really nice way of sort of balancing the show out, providing another um, person for Dipper to interact with um, who is more sort of a huge nerd. I mean, this is basically the point of an episode called Dungeons, Dungeons, and More Dungeons, which, as you can imagine, is the Dungeons and Dragons episode. Um, yeah, so you know, I, th- I think that it's one of those things where um, whenever they do the big mystery episodes, I know that that like a lot of shows like this, that's a huge, like there's a huge section of fandom that is really into the mysteries. It's the sort of like, you know, like it's a lost starter kit type of show in that, in that sense or, or X-Files, which is it's more um, direct um, descendant. Um, I think that as a reviewer, I kind of train myself not to focus on that stuff. Cause I, I think that the, unf- like focusing on the mystery stuff means a lot of sort of speculating and wondering. And I don't think that's fair to the show as it's airing. And I I just don't think it's that interesting as a reviewer to write about. So I try to focus more on the character stuff and, and sort of how does the show take what it's revealing um, about the, the nature of its world and what are the big secrets and like, how does it actually make them mean something to the characters who are experiencing them? And thus far, been really 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 good at that um into the bunker was the episode where they finally uh dealt with the dipper wendy tension but it was also an episode that pushed the conspiracy plot line forward and again it was connecting it all not what he seems aired in uh or actually sorry a tale of two stands was the follow-up to not what he seems that was the one that finally introduced ford properly um and really was as much about the relationship the fractured relationship between these twins as it was between um you know the, the big mysteries so um, yeah, just big ups to Gravity Falls. Um, tonight's episode, Dipper and Mabel versus the future. Um, I've been looking at the Gravity Falls Tumblr community, which is an adorable community because it's like, how old are these people? It frankly could be like any age. It doesn't matter. It's all, they're all sort of at the same level of innocence um, and sweetness about this. It is officially broken, the Gravity Falls Tumblr. So I don't honestly want to give too much away about it. I think um, it's definitely, if like you're behind on Gravity Falls, I think this is a bit of a game changing episode. So I kind of want to just leave it at that but it has been a really really good show if you're kind of looking to um get caught up quickly um i think that watching not what he seems and a tale of two stands which are the two sort of big uh, mythology episodes on either side are the ones to hone in on um and then uh the one that came comes directly after that actually the dungeons dungeons and more dungeons episode is a good one for sort of laying out the current character dynamics uh between both sets of uh pines twins so so that's my big Gravity Falls spiel. I think it's it's doing it's doing good stuff, and I suspect we're closing in on the end of the show because it seems as though it's going to kind of finish telling its story fairly soon. And considering like it's like you know been telling the story over like what four years at this point, despite it being two seasons, it's probably about time to wrap up. But um, but yeah, it's a good. One. Do you get that sense from uh, talk, interviews and stuff with the with the creators that? This is a closed-ended show? 
Um, I think they've been fairly ambiguous about that. Like, I, I mean, it's well, it's one of those things where it's always hard to like figure out, depending on sort of how inside you want to be in your reading of it, like how much of it is this is exactly what we intended, and how much of it is like this is what Disney XD has told us, and we need to make the best of it. Like, I don't necessarily know that it's ideal for them for these episodes to be airing so far apart from each other, but that's just sort of the nature of working with Disney XD or Disney as a whole. Um, I think that there is the sense of you know, so far it's unfolded over a single summer and I think it would be weird to either jump ahead to the next summer or, you know, in theory they'd be going back to wherever it is Dipper and Mabel come from for, um, you know, once the fall comes. So it does seem as though it is – I mean they've already stretched out the summer to such a ridiculous degree, of course, because, um, you know, even the years, they're, it's not like they're trying to pretend that it's still 2012 and Gravity Falls time. Um, so so I th- I think that – it feels as though this show is building up to the apocalypse and when it comes, the show will kind of have nowhere left to go. I could then see Disney kind of being jerks and renewing the show anyway and then them having that classic moment, where do we go from here? We just literally blew up the world. Um, but I suspect we're headed towards a satisfying conclusion, whether it will be the conclusion of the show. I'm not 100% sure, but it sure feels like they are building towards something very specific in the not so distant future, uh, depending on hiatuses. So what I'm hearing is ketchup. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. I mean, you can look at my, uh, my AV club reviews. There's a couple episodes, um, that I was not the biggest fan of. Um, but it is this thing of like, because I think the show, when it's really got its fastball, when it's really like figuring it out has a great amount of emotional maturity. Like, I mean, the most recent episode before tonight's roadside attraction, um, it has nothing to do with the mythology stuff at all, but is very much about like why it is wrong to sort of, you know, flirt with people and lead them on if you're not actually interested at all. And, you know, it is one of those things where it's it's a lesson that is a uh, done with a, a degree of, of nuance and sort of trying to, like, show, you know, particularly like the younger boys who might be watching this, why this is not great behavior in a way that is not, you know, that is, I think, done done with the right degree of nuance and intelligence and subtlety. So it's doing a lot of good things in a lot of different ways. I got a lot of respect for what Gravity Falls is all about. Yes, well, I certainly was a big fan when I was watching it. And I mean, I still love that's one of my favorite Halloween episodes in a long time, the one that they did last year. Uh, that was towards the end of of the the bit of it that, that we were covering on the podcast at that at that point. So I I look forward to catching up. I've got a few people in my circle who have been pestering me to catch up, and I like the show. So hopefully I will soon catch up. But let's move on to our next show of the week, which is Bob's Burgers: The Land Ship. Now I haven't had a chance to watch this one because we were talking about Doctor Who <laughs> when this is airing. Um, but what did you think of this week's episode? And I, I did like last week's episode, Sliding Bob's, quite a bit. Yeah, Sliding Bob's was great. And I want to actually discuss that because we've kind of been monologuing at each other um, today. And I don't know how on or off format that is. But um, The Landship was an episode that is the big thing, as you mentioned. You mentioned Nathan for you is coming back. This one actually features Nathan Fielder uh, making a guest appearance um, and as you can, as a love interest sort of for, for Tina. And I think you can imagine um, Dan Mintz and Nathan Fielder like playing off of each other. That is monotone on monotone fighting right there of the finest kind. Um, and it's a it's a decent episode. Um, it wasn't one of my favorites. I know there were a lot of uh, just, just as I was briefly looking at the uh, comments on my 
my V Club review, um, which I gave a, a B minus to, to the extent that grades mean anything. Um, I know that a lot of people seem to like it a lot more than I did. Um, the, the kind of the, the Tischler landship, the eponymous landship, whatever, um, is a reference to like the town's history in the War of 1812. And I was a little bummed that they seemed to be tilting in the direction of my all time favorite Simpsons episode, which is Lisa the Iconoclast, the one where she looks into the history of Jebediah Springfield and kind of doing a deep dive into the history of the town. And then they really don't do very much with it. It's kind of just a plot device for this um, plot where Tina and Nathan Fielder's Jordan are going around doing graffitiing and being really boring and awkward together. Um, it is, however, worth watching for the way that they dramatize um, Jordan uh, kissing Tina because it is the worst kiss in the history of television. Like I'm not even – it like – I believe Tina says at one point, and this is an accurate depiction of what he is doing. You don't need to put your entire, you don't need to put my ma- your mouth over my nose and my mouth. Like that's what he's doing as as what he thinks a kiss is. It's like it, it's th- just the grossest, stupidest thing ever. Um, it's a really funny, really well timed, really well staged bit of physical comedy um, in the middle of an episode that I think is one of those things where it's sort of the whole meta joke of it is that um, basically. Basically, these are the two most boring people like trying to do something really cool and rebellious, which is graffiti and or tagging. And that the meta joke is, of course, is that they're so dull and that's funny. But it's one of those things. It's I think it's really just hard to sustain comedic energy off just um, meta humor like that, off just a sort of anti joke like that. So I don't think it quite lands the way that I wish it did. Um, so landship, decent, but one of the more skippable Bob's Burgers episodes. If for some reason you don't want to watch every single episode, but there are a couple moments of brilliance tucked in there. Definitely. Uh, any thoughts on Sliding Bob's then? Uh, I thought Sliding Bob's was fantastic. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm a big fan of these sort of trilogy episodes they do where they uh, let the – see everything from multiple perspectives, usually the, the kids' three perspectives, and you get sort of this front row seat uh, of how deranged Luis, Jean, and Tina's like take on the world is and um, it – and I think – to do, uh, I guess, what you had a RoboCop parody, you had a a very random werewolf romance, and then you had an actual restaging of the pilot episode as different ways of um, dramatizing what would have happened if Bob and uh, Linda hadn't met in the way that they did, or if Bob had been clean shaven when they first met. Um, yeah, I I, th- I thought it was one of the better executed versions of of that form, and in particular, um, that actually was an example of a really well executed meta joke of again, like literally restaging the entire pi- or the first act of the pilot, um, and having Bob and Hugo switch places was really fun and 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 clever. And, and again, it's one of those things where it works really well because it's it just works on a lot of different levels. So you have um, you're sort of seeing something filtered through. Um, Tina's perspective. They're like jokes that are in character for the characters, but also they're the jokes because you're understanding these are the characters as Tina understands them and as Tina is commenting on them as she's telling the story. So it's a really clever, really complicated bit of comedic storytelling. And so, yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, it was a really fun premiere. And and again, like you say, having that, having that, those three stories, whenever they do that, it does tend to work really well. It's this is the version of Life in Pieces that I'm more interested in, where you break the story into, you know, take advantage of the three kids and the, the book ending narrative to, to take care of your four acts. Like, how are we going to split it up very tidily? You know, on Infutrama, you have your um, 
uh, Anthology of Interest on uh, Adventure Time. They do the Grables here. They take advantage of the, where the commercial breaks are to, to do very discreet stories, but then have a larger narrative hooking them together, and it works very well when they do that. What's specific about it is that and, – and this is something I tried to touch on in the review – is that it works really well because it is – underneath it all, it's just an episode of the Belcher family hanging out in the apartment. And the Belchers are maybe the best drawn – and not in the sense of animated but like best characterized um, family on TV at the moment. They're certainly in that conversation and they just – the way they play off of each other. And it's one of those things where you're like, oh, man, I could watch the entire episode. It's just the five of them riffing off of one another. And, of course, you can't really get away with doing that um, for a whole 23 minutes. But when you're hiding it around these big experimental set pieces, it works really, really well. So it's a kind of having your cake and eating it too, like both doing the lowest energy and the highest energy version of the show at once in a way that complements one another really nicely. Well, and because the kids are so different and their takes on these different stories um, are varied tonally, it lets you get away with that a lot more than if if these were more realistic characters. If it was like a live action show and they felt like actual uh, kids and there wasn't that heightened element to the show, it wouldn't work the same way. It wouldn't be as successful, I don't think. And uh, But because you can have the RoboCop one where it's ridiculous and then you can have, you know, the more, you know, like you said, t- calling back to the pilot and, you know, having more character based and less over the top um it, it keeps it from from feeling too much i guess like a gimmick it absolutely yeah. is a gimmick but when it's an animation and when the sh- the reality of the world's already somewhat heightened um through when you're talking a character's talking through pr- their perspective it it really helps smooth out that potential wrinkle yeah and um, and of course there's nothing wrong with with gimmicks they just got to be well executed and i think these are well executed because again they're they're fundamentally anchored in the characters and like a, you can immediately tell a gene story from a tina story uh, it's it can be a little harder to tell a gene and louise story apart i think louise is a little more mean spirited in the story she tells and has a better concept of story structure which is a funny thing that like but it does actually make total sense that Louise would care more about like well-organized stories than than Gene would, who is just a complete goofball um, from from start to finish. So um, I have not been uh, let down by any of the ones they've done yet. I think the Gale Tales last year was probably the weakest one of. I think they've done about four of these at this point. Um, but really, like every time they've gone to this well, I just it is it is enjoyable because again, it isn't just this thing where, as I think a lot of the sort of latter-day Treehouse of Horrors have become which you're just like oh we just want to do a style parody of different horror movies and they only and they kind of live or die based on how good the jokes are and because it's latter-day simpsons the jokes aren't that great um here they they have something deeper to lean on which is we are talking about the characters and we're also uh we're, we're not only like learning something new about the kids as they tell their stories but we're also seeing bob and linda responding and reacting to them so that's the clever thing as well is that you can put the characters in conversation with one another yeah definitely well, how, how that's how, you know we're we're on board with this season of Bob's Burgers and just the show in general. But how are you feeling about Brooklyn Nine Nine this season and this week's episode, uh, Boyle's Hunch? So I've not I have not seen Boyle's Hunch yet. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so far, Brooklyn Nine Nine is just doing its thing, doing it really well. 
I am definitely on team. Andy Samberg is an effective comic lead. I know there are some people who will never be on that team, but um, I and I, but I think this season is looking really strong. Like I feel like there's always this thing with comedies like this that you're always waiting to see what's the moment where they kind of start to swerve into the ditch. But I haven't seen the swerve yet. It feels just as strong as seasons one and two so far. Yeah, it's definitely had a strong start to the season. And, you know, when you talk about Boyle and the the initial creepiness with Rosa, um, they've really they've done such a good job of, of coming back from that. And what they you know, this this episode that you're going to watch soon um, is very Boyle centric. And uh, we get Marilyn Rice Cub showing up and in, in a delightful guest turn. I, I like when shows remember that she's a comedian <laughs> and she, it's nice to see her as you know as something other than than chloe or like gail the snail but she's very funny as gail the snail on always sunny but i like to see her more actively being comedic and stuff as well because she's good at that um so so having her show up as a love interest for boyle in this week's episode is is delightful and again just getting more uh peralta and and boyle buddy comedy beats I think works really well and also allows them to do something different from the first two episodes, which are much more um, interested in, in Peralta, Peralta and Santiago's relationship. And I think they've done that well. They've handled it well. We've talked about it on the podcast in the past couple of weeks that it's nice that they're willing to change things up a bit and find new, um, new ways to pay off and then move on from and then develop the, the story beats that they spent the first couple seasons on. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that has always served the show really well was that, um, you know, that that all the characters felt um, very clearly defined from the get go, and and then the sort of joy was in basically getting to pair them off in all these different combinations and permutations, and uh, most of them have worked, and most of them have produced interesting, unexpected kinds of kinds of jokes that you wouldn't necessarily get from other combinations. Um, and of course, I think the danger is that you start to think, oh, we have to kind of keep everyone frozen in roughly the same place or else we can't, um, you know, we'll, we'll lose this ability to have spark off each other in funny ways but but so far they seem to have really done a good job of you know and and not this thing where it's like a sudden you know switch being flipped with um with uh, amy and jake i think that it's one of those things that it, it does feel like the natural extension of a build-up and something where as much as their relationship or the contours of it changed and became more explicitly romantic over the course of the last season and now obviously this one like they're still more or less interacting in the same way like i think i think they've been very canny in letting uh, situations like create new opportunities for the characters to interact but not feeling as though they need to radically overall how the characters act to each other and also I think thus far they've done a good job of holding the characters back from going too broad or being very selective in the characters that they feel oh yeah they can just be completely um, broad and over the top but also know how to how to bring them back like I just think I think that it's a very tightly controlled show and very precise in the way that it, it plays its various characters so I yeah Brooklyn Nine-Nine is is again I think it's it's gonna be underrated I feel like it's just destined to be that underrated sitcom that everyone's like oh yeah that one's really good but <laughs> not enough people say first first things first that show's amazing well, uh, I don't disagree with you on that one. I do think it is underrated. Um, however, I want to move on to our next show because the one show of the, the new fall season that every co-host who has come on has wanted to talk about is The Muppets. Every single yeah. one. Since before it started, since it came on the air, I find that fascinating. And you wanted to talk about The Muppets. And then, and specifically this week, we have Bear Left, Then Bear Right. And this is uh, a Fozzie and a Kermit 
uh, centric episode with them. Uh, with Fozzie writes a terrible sketch, um, and and asks Kermit for his reaction to it, and that doesn't go well. So, uh, what did you think of this episode in particular, and how are you feeling about the season? Yeah, I mean, I, I I have to admit I'm still catching up on on the Muppets, so you know I'm st- I I don't think I've gone to this one just yet. Um, so I'm I'm interested to hear your take on it. I guess like my my big thing with the Muppets is just like it is this sort of this this conceptual thing of of whether again this sort of move to this more adult form of uh joke telling but you know i i I fear that i'm going to be a bit of a broken record so i kind of want to turn over you as you're the kind of constant presence here to to give your take and just just so i know that i'm not going to be just repeating what everyone else you've had on this fine show has been ranting about vis-a-vis the Muppets. So I kind of want to turn the mic back over to you for this. Oh, see, that's the thing. The last two guests have not been ranting. We've been pro. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think I just it's not even that I'm ranting necessarily. It's just that like there I have an uneasiness about about this this vision of the Muppets. Um, I think that I will um, I'll make the I'll do the hacky thing and make a Sullivan's Travels reference. Um, that thing that everyone does. Um, I think all it's like cool that. Kids. I, all the cool kids are just just dropping Preston Sturgis uh, references left and right. And I, I think that it's this idea. It's a little like um, like the one of the points of that movie is like the director who wants to make like the socially conscious drama to illuminate the plight of the poor and suddenly re- and realizes by the end that there's more value in just making um, the silly comedies because it's not just making them. It's making something that like actually like, you know, um, entertains and makes people happy. And that has that has greater value. And it's not quite the same thing as that. But I, I think it's the similar thing of like. The 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 Muppets. I have like I guess my kind of couple issues with the conception of this show is one is that I think that the Muppets have always been kind of a fundamentally old fashioned thing. Like you look at like the Muppet Show, which came out in the seventies, but like had a sensibility that I think was already like what like twenty years out of date at least when that show was airing. Um, and while the show is and while the different incarnations of the Muppets have always had. Um, really uh, have had the, you know it's not like they've always been like kitty shows by any stretch of imagination there's there's been an adult sensibility to them but i think that it's the it's the adultness that comes and have like adult fears and like worries of like people splitting up and separating like that's always been a big thing um partic- i mean the 2012 movie did that a lot the jason siegel movie um but i i think that there's this sort of difference t- to my mind between a conception of what adult um the adult world is as this place where sort of awful things happen and people are kind of awful to each other because that's just sort of the way things are. And then there's sort of a more understanding of like, yeah, that's kind of true. But also like there's room to say to kind of go past that and be a little more mature and say we don't need to sh- to necessarily like revel in that. Like it's not um, necessarily like naive to say, oh, we're just going to do a slightly different thing here. And I don't know, like it's it's one of those things where I think that there is a there is a different kind of adultness, which is more about kind of moving beyond the sort of scuzziness of being an adult and trying to trying to key in on something there. There's a little there's a little more wisdom to what the Muppets are all about, I guess, as much as they can be very silly. Um, but it is the it is the wisdom that it like enables one to revel in one's own silliness, if that makes sense. Um, so that that I think has always been sort of my understanding of what the Muppets are and, and where um, as I've watched the show and I'm a little behind in watching it. But what I have just not which I see 
spurts because it is sort of there but at the same time there are just moments that just ring that just play very very sour for me because i think it's it's doing something that feels fundamentally uh, if not opposed to that then certainly very fundamentally apart from from that sense that i you know it's one of those things that it's hard to completely spell it out because it's like this thing that has just always felt consistent about previous incarnations and now that it's not here it's harder to define it but that that's my general thesis of what i think the muppets are and why this present show it's fine it's done some decent things i think it's worth you know giving a fair shake to but it hasn't quite felt right to me thus far i a big complaint i've heard from a lot of sources um is that this doesn't feel like the muppets um because and one of the things that i've I've heard a lot of people specifically keying into is kermit needs to be more joyful and he doesn't feel like kermit um and again, because like you say, they're not going for just the the exuberance and the joy of the Muppets. Uh, they're going for this more, air quotes, realistic or more um, relatable. They, it, what if they're the Muppets are real people kind of thing? Um, and I haven't really had too much of an issue with it. Um, I see where you're coming from, uh, but I, I've... I've liked enough the show this this far this season, but like I said previously on the podcast, I have no strong background with the Muppet Show. I just have seen some of, and I love the characters, but I've I've seen some of the the those other films and and material, but not enough to really feel like I can say accurately say who each of these characters are. But what I will say is that this week's episode, which I know you haven't seen yet. Uh, bear left and bear right is the first time I was like, you know what? I can kind of see what people are saying in this in this episode specifically with with Kermit. There's a, a lot of other stuff going on in the episode that I did really like, but um, the, the beats that they're playing here, where they eventually get Kermit, I feel like is something that should be a starting place for this episode. Like he shouldn't. It feels wrong when Kermit lies to Fozzie Bear to hurt to spare his feelings about something um, and then it all spirals out I feel like Kermit is many things but I, it feels wrong to have him be a, a person who's lying yes to make Fozzie feel better but also just it seems feels like it's more out of self-interest and that doesn't that didn't feel quite right for me so um yeah, I, I I know I don't know if you have, if you have any thoughts on the ta- the character of Kermit from the episodes that you've seen of the season. If if that is you know sounding like a, a complaint you have with the season, um, but that's w- one of the things I did pick up on this most recent episode. Yeah, there is this thing where I think there's also the. This this issue and this is I don't know how fair a criticism this is there. I think that's also we're just sort of reaching like this transitional point where um, it's just like, you know, I, I mean, Steve Whitmire has been doing Kermit now for what, like 30 years almost like he's been doing it for a long time. I mean, obviously, Jim Henson died a long time ago, but it's like it's starting. I think that the sort of overlap between um, Henson and Whitmire's interpretation of Kermit um, used to be a lot closer. And now it just feels like they're diverging in just the way that he's voicing him. And I think that, you know, some of it is just that I think that Kermit doesn't quite sound like he has the same energy that he does in in some of the earlier Whitmire voiced Muppet films and and you know that may just be that he's getting a little older I mean I know that you can like listen to like a Simpsons episode these days and it doesn't quite sound it, it obviously doesn't quite sound the same as one made 20 years ago because 20 years have elapsed um so some of it I feel like is down to performance as well like like it is this thing where just because I think um I'm just double checking I believe Gonzo and and like it's the 
Dave Dave Gells is the only I think regular like original Muppet performer who's still doing voices on the show. I think that's correct, and like I think that there's there's does feel like a continuity to Gonzo because it's still the same voice that kind of makes it easier for me to understand it than than or, or, or relate to him than some of the other ones. I think that yeah, I think I think that what you're describing with Kermit does sort of speak to this issue of like. Um, you know, Kermit is is like I, I think of like the Kermit of the Muppet Show and of the of the sort of three original movies, Muppet Movie, uh, Great Muppet Caper, and Takes Manhattan, where he's not playing another character, like he's not playing uh, Bob Cratchit or um, or uh, the Captain in Treasure Island or whatever. Um, I think he can be like he can be harried and he can be short tempered and a little irascible and but like he is he tends to be like forthright to a fault like that's kind of what Kermit is like if I think about like like who he tends to be it's like his issues come from being too honest and too straightforward not from being kind of a sniveling weasel character and it feels like it's this thing where it's like oh this is like kermit who's like gone hollywood and gone a little to seed and like become a little sleazy and like it's i don't know again it's it's not that it's like this is this is wrong but at the same time it's it's just this thing where it's like it's harder for me to see what is the appeal of this like there are a lot of other characters that you could have in this role it feels like if you're going to use kermit the frog there's something to be said for honoring who Kermit has been up to this point. And this, I mean, this always goes back to like the essential question with these sort of legacy characters. Is it that you want to just hold them the same forever because that's what people like about them and like this is why you use them at all? Or do you want to try to keep pushing them forward and keep innovating with them? And I don't necessarily claim that there is a right or wrong answer in every situation or in this particular situation, but I, I do find myself more coming to the side of I think the Muppets represent a particular thing in the pop culture landscape through most of their movies and shows. And I kind of think that if you're going to use them, it's better to use them to mainly remain in in that idiom because it's an underserved idiom, this sort of willingness to be um, mature yet silly. And this feels like something apart from that and is something where, you know, I think it's a it's a there's a show worth telling here, but I'm not sure the Muppets are the right vehicle for the show as it's currently being being put together but again could be proved wrong over the course of a season okay fair enough um how speaking of new shows and uh, capturing tone and and all of that how are the new uh versions of the daily show and the late and the late show working for you how how are trevor noah and stephen colbert taking over for their predecessors so how many I, we were briefly – I was briefly mentioning this in the – in our pre-show discussion. Like how many new talk shows have we actually seen premiere over the last like three years? Like it's an insane amount, isn't it? Because it's like it, – it's all of the broadcast shows. You've got the new nightly show, now a daily show, last week tonight. There's just been – we've had so many of these to to go through. We've we've had so many late night think pieces. Um, Trevor Noah, I have to say I have been pretty impressed out of the gate. I feel like the, the thing is is that you can certainly – certainly tell that a lot of the same writing staff and production and correspondence are in place from the old daily show to the new um and at times it's this thing where you certainly could feel like you could have had john stewart wander in here and do and read the script and it would feel very very similar like i mean the jokes would land in different places emphases would be placed on different things but like it wouldn't feel out of character for john to be reading most of these things um where I would 
they so I think and I think that that generally isn't a bad thing. Um, but I but it it has been this thing where it's like if if again there's always this feeling with a new late night show how are they going to reinvent everything and Trevor Noah has not reinvented anything um, thus far. The sort of two big things that I've I've noticed one uh, positive one sort of negative. It kind of depends on your perspective. I'll start with that one. Um, his interviewing is very sycophantic thus far and very particular in who he seems to be bringing on, which is a lot of like tech related people. Like he's had, um, uh, multiple people to do with the Steve Jobs movie came on. Like I know Seth Rogen and Aaron Sorkin both came on to promote, um, Steve Jobs in, in consecutive days. So clearly Trevor Noah, Trevor Noah or his bookers are like, whatever, like someone really likes, um, Steve Jobs. Cause I don't remember. I mean, I'm, Sure, it happened at some point, but I don't remember the Daily Show bringing on multiple people from the same movie in consecutive days. Um, and he's like had you know people who are like the designers of apps, and there's just generally a not necessarily self-congratulatory, but you can just tell like he's you know still very green at the interviewing thing. Which, in fairness, like there there are hosts who have been on the air for decades and are arguably still kind of terrible interviewers you you know i know that like this is something that people are always debating are is there a single late night host who's actually a good interviewer i'm not necessarily sure there's consensus on any of them um but the one piece that i think it came was at the end i think it was the last episode of his first week which was the uh donald trump is running to be the first african president segment which was the first one that really played very specifically on Trevor Noah's heritage as, as someone who is a South African immigrant um, and obviously grew up in South Africa and has a, a great understanding of um, not to say African culture as a whole because obviously South Africa is only one very small part of the second largest continent on the planet. But um, it definitely felt like something that, again, it would have been very weird for Jon Stewart to try to do that bit and it made a lot of sense for Trevor Noah to do it and I thought that it was a very well-executed thing and um, – you know, there there is this feeling also of some of his pieces. I think the Uber piece that he did in the second week um, felt a little bit almost like a like a like a mini like last week tonight esque segment where it felt more like an essay kind of thing as opposed to like more of the sort of news um, pose that Jon Stewart j- tended to stick to. And again, maybe it's just because it sounds different because Trevor Noah is saying it as opposed to Jon Stewart. But there, I, I suspect if there's a kernel of something that of where the show may evolve, it may evolve into something that will definitely never be last week tonight because it's never going to 18 minutes to do one story. Um, but I could see them sort of low, like just, just, tamping down the jokes in some of these pieces and, and, and letting it be a little more serious, a little more, not quite investigative, but I don't know. It felt like there was like the kernel of a new style of daily show, uh, joke telling there. So, um, overall very solid transition thus far. Um, I think the imp- big thing for improvement that I'm seeing with Trevor Noah is I think he needs to get better at interviewing. Um, but that's again, true of like every late night host. And then, um, the places where I'm excited are to see again, how, they can take a more global perspective in, which is generally like a very lazy think PC type thing to throw out, but I think was actually on display when the uh, Trump as the first African president bit. Um, and then also how the sort of writing of the show's main uh, top pieces may uh, move away from the more strictly newsy kind of frame that Jon Stewart tended to do. So that that's my big uh, set of thoughts on Trevor Noah. Fair enough. Um, I certainly have been watching a lot more, of the show um, than I expected to. I, 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 I tuned in for the, uh, the, the opening week and, and, and I wasn't sure uh, like exactly 
how you know how much of it I would I would be into and and how the transition would go. But I, I certainly was curious about that. I think he did a good job over the course of his um, over the course of his first week. But the I found myself going back to it more. The the other one that I, I've I found myself doing that more and more with is Colbert. I've really enjoyed the interviews that Colbert has been doing, and I whereas I've been more kind of tuning out of the Trevor Noah interviews. So so maybe that's part of it. And like you say, it's very odd for the show to have guests from the same project back to back. There's a very specific theme to the booking of The Daily Show with Trevor Noah so far of their guests and it it does make sense for someone who what I think he's like just about 30 to be super interested in like techie stuff and like that definitely is a very clear way of delineating um John Stewart who you know definitely played up the idea of oh he's an old fart who isn't like super into technology like I don't I believe he never got a twitter things like that which you know fair fair enough John Stewart um but like and I think by comparison like Trevor Noah being very into that sort of thing like it it's one of those things where I could I could certainly see them wanting to sort of consciously separate themselves from the predecessor show but yeah it's just it's weird that that's such a big theme thus far of their game yeah well that'll be that'll be one to see if that this is just like a recent trend or if that's something that um bears out over the course of the first several months but that's interesting i hadn't keyed into that but i, I certainly will now so thank you for for bringing it up um that takes us to the end of our week in comedy what wins your week in comedy um i will i i i i mean it's a it is old but i was like shotgunning a bunch of uh trevor noah's and i again i think that there's there's just been some segments there that i do think are like make me very happy to know that uh the daily show is in safe hands because i started watching the daily show in like 1999 like i think i watched it from like john stewart's second year all the way to the end with definitely some times of stepping away so it's an important show to me like it's not like it's not nothing to me that the, the daily show is continuing uh and feels very solid so as a sort of general omnibus I'll, i'm gonna give i'm gonna give it to trevor noah for i think exceeding a lot of people's expectations out of the gate Fair enough. And I'm going to give it to You're the Worst, uh, which had a fantastic episode that hopefully I will talk a bit more about next week. But for now, we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre and drama. This week in genre and drama, I'm going to quickly preview Manhattan, which is starting up its second season on WGN, and then talk uh, a little bit about the iZombie and Supernatural premieres. I'll kind of put those two together um, and uh, then mention Steven Universe, Back to the Barn, S.H.I.E.L.D., Purpose in the Machine, uh, The Leftovers, A Matter of Geography. It's going to be kind of a Kate's Roundup. And then the two of us will talk about the Flash premiere, The Man Who Saved Central City, and the Arrow premiere, 
Green Arrow. So first up, uh, I just wanted to preview Manhattan. I've seen the first four episodes of season two, and now I had seen uh, the first, I want to say half of season one, but I had gotten away from the show because while I really uh, enjoyed what I had seen, it wasn't really grabbing me and telling me I needed to watch it. And uh, when there's too much TV, those are the shows that fall by the wayside. But I was glad to have watched these first four episodes of the season. I think fans of the show will be very... Uh, pleased with them they do some really interesting stuff with some of the characters and the performances are very strong some of the actors get a lot more to do in this season than they have uh, at least at the beginning of the first season I, I can't speak to the end of the first season but I, I like the way that they're changing up some of the dynamics I like the uh, I don't know how much I can say I don't want to spoil anything but I really like um, where there's some shakeups in in jobs and in um professional and personal lives that work really well and give uh, some characters some really good stuff to play. Um, Justin Kirk shows up for an episode and gives a really interesting performance. Um, there's some new cast members. William Peterson just joins the cast as a somewhat inscrutable uh, military figure and he's, he's a welcome addition and I just, you know, it's nice to see uh, Olivia Williams on my TV every week. It's always a good thing. Not to mention uh, Rachel Brosnahan is g giving an excellent performance. And there's a bunch of other really interesting actors on this show. So I would say um, if you haven't made time for Manhattan, you can jump in with the start of the second season. There will be certain dynamics that you don't quite get, but you can pick up a lot of it from context clues. But the, the, se the se season premiere begins with 21 Days Till Hiroshima. So that's just a boom, we're, we're starting. Season premiere, this is where we're going. Um, and so that, that really energizes the start of this season. And uh, there's some, some sort of playing with time of, of timelines and jumping back and forth a little bit in, in these episodes that I think is effective. But having that narrative thrust of where the season is clearly headed towards, I think uh, is going to give it a lot more energy than at least, the, again, the start of the first season. And I'm glad to have seen these. We will be covering it week to week over at Pop Optic. Uh, Amy's going to be re reviewing it for us there. So if you're a fan of the show, check out the reviews that we're going to have going up. But yeah, Glad I'm, I'm on board for Manhattan season two. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of premieres here at the top. I Zombie, Grumpy Old Live, and Supernatural had its premiere Out of the Darkness Into the Fire. Um, Supernatural premiere I was underwhelmed by, if only because yet again they've set it up where one of the brothers has a, a burden to bear and uh and or a sickness or a mark or a thing that that is then gonna be the thrust of their their journey for the season, trying to cure themselves of it. And they're lying to their brother about it. It's like, guys, come on, writers, you can do better than this. You've already done this so many times. I have to say, as someone who has only ever like covered the show from afar, like uh, particularly like when I was over at IO9 writing like morning spoilers and having to like post a lot of um, various things for various seasons. I think I was there for probably like maybe season seven through nine or something. I was like, man. One of them is always like possessed or like unsold yep. or like is like has a like is a demon or, or something. And it's like, is it it just is like literally like just flipping between one or the other. And I'm glad to know that that is still going on, that there is apparently only one move this show has. And it's literally just saying this year it's going to be Jared. The next year it's going to be Jensen. And then we'll just flip it back and forth again i am I, I, it's it's frankly amazing to me that that's all the show needs to do to get what it needs to do yep yep <laughs> well because they've overpowered the characters so this is the only way they can think of to to you know give them uh, something to, to to nerf their abilities a bit basically because if they're both uh full fighting strength 
how is that going to be interesting? And that's the challenge, writers. And I would love to see you tackle it. One thing I didn't realize uh, that Jared Padalecki is still only 33. So he has literally like lived through his entire adulthood basically on Supernatural. Like this is mm-hmm. this is like this is like the the sequel to Boyhood playing out before our eyes. <laughs> is Jensen Ackles aging slowly on Supernatural? Jensen Ackles and Jared Padalecki, the giant. Jared Padalecki, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Just deeply, deeply tall people just yeah. doing things. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the iZombie premiere more, but um, I don't have the affinity that it seems like a lot of other critics and, and TV fans that I know do for this series. I like it, but whereas I see other people talking about how amazing the central performance is, for me, it just feels like parody every week. So this week, she eats old man, grumpy old man, cantankerous old man brains. And so, like, every time she stands up out of a chair, she's, like, holding her hip. And I'm like, it's still your body. You you have this person's personality, but you don't suddenly have a bad hip now. Like, th- there's there are these little touches in, in iZombie where I want to be so on board with the show. And I, I like some of the stuff it does really well. It's handling of a character like Major is so much better than every other show I can think of. Uh, how, how they usually, genre shows usually handle the, the girlfriend or boyfriend character, who that's their main descriptor. Uh, they do such a better job with him than they do on, on most other sh- shows, especially early in their run. Um, but yeah, it's just, I, again, I'm, I'm underwhelmed by certain elements of it. They, they have not done a good enough job establishing who Liv is and then really having her embody these different personalities and have them have it feel organic, have it feel like an extension of her rather than just this thing that she's putting on and both as from the actor, but also from the character. So, uh, I'm, I guess a bit nonplussed on iZombie. Whereas I am super on board with Shield right now, Purpose in the Machine, and they did. Now, did you hear anything about Shield this week? Because I know you're a comics guy. Um, I don't think I heard anything specifically about Shield. It's kind of weird how much it seems to have fallen off the general radar. So, what is, what's going on with Shield this week? What's going on with Shield this week is that it's episode two of the season, and they got Simmons back from this other planet that she got sucked off to, and it was incredibly tense and dramatic and because when they're doing this it's this thing of is Fitz going to get pulled back before he can save her like there they had their hands like fingertips on fingertips and is he going to be wrenched away or is she going to be able to hold on and because it's episode two at least when I'm watching this I'm assuming oh no he's going to get so close but then he's going to get pulled back and that's going to be he's no she's alive so he has to move heaven and earth to find her over the course of the season like that's that's what you expect, right? Mm-hmm. That is not what they do. Instead, he does save her, but it's clear that she's fucked up from having been on this, like, it seems like it's like a prisoner kind of colony. Like, they send people there as punishment, and it's like a desolate wasteland kind of desert planet. Um, so she's clearly very screwed up from having been there. She's got serious PTSD, and instead, that's going to be what they explore with her. And that's so much more interesting. So you are saying that there is they're not going to be making the sort of spin-off miniseries of adapting World War Hulk with Simmons in the Hulk role. In the Hulk role. No, no, I do Uh-oh, not think that's that's no. a shame. That I mean this sounds like much better television, but like in terms of like delightfully stupid pitches, uh everyone can have that one for free. Um that yeah, I mean I I'm I'm glad to hear that like Shield has sort of um I I think now that it seems like it's a lot less 
crucial to, um, you know, just being this sort of load bearing um, candy cane for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, I think that particularly since we're a little off cycle with those films at the moment, um, it's very cool that you know there's there's more room for the show just to sort of do its own thing and be its own thing and i'm i'm glad to hear that it is just it has gotten over that blandness that infected it for the first what like three fourths of a season like it it took a while to shake off that rust yeah no it definitely did and like you said just having there be other superhero shows on tv so it can not feel like it it's making a statement as a superhero show or that it needs to be not really a superhero show, more procedural, but with like flavor text, you know, because you know Arrow and Flash, which we're going to get to shortly here, are very popular shows, at least in the, the conversation, if not ratings wise compared to I me, mean, the CW just has a much smaller audience. But because there are other shows, uh, other comic book shows out there that are very successful, um, at least culturally, if not numbers wise, it lets them kind of embrace that element more. You would think that shouldn't be a conversation they need to have when you look at social like The Walking Dead or the popularity of comic book movies out there, that the, the ABC would let them actually be superhero-y. Um, but the more they've gone in that vein, the stronger the show has become. And they've really built up the ensemble quite a bit. They, they These feel like interesting characters. I'm much more invested in them now than I was at the start of the, of the series. And I think they've, they've really been very steadily um, increasing uh, in quality and uh, in my interest over the past three seasons. The next show uh, of the week is Steven Universe, Back to the Barn. And again, I'm just going to keep mentioning it. I'm not going to say that much about it, but I'm going to mention it so that uh, hopefully some of our, more of our, our listeners will, will check it out. This week, uh, we get a more kind of standalone episode, but what it includes, which is really nice, is more backstory. We get to have a much more engagement with Pearl. I've been missing the main Crystal Gems, and so to get some more time with Pearl this week and being a engineering genius, and then to have revealed that, oh, she's part of, like, this clone race that is a servant class out in the galaxy, and so Peridot, who's this this villain that they've defanged and is working with them now, uh, doesn't respect her because she's she's the help. Um is really interesting and it's the kind of thing that this show does where it spends a season establishing its characters and then you find out all this other stuff about where they come from and how 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 much of an outlier they are or, or the reasons that they're on earth and not back home um so i think you know the way that they added that in was pretty great i would have liked there to be a song i love the pearl songs are always like the best um but there is, there is no song there is a bit of a dance sequence sort of um, so I'll take it, but, uh, I'm looking forward to where the season is going. I do think it's something that I've heard other people say, if they had put all the Peridot episodes into a Steven bomb, I think it would have played quite a bit better. We get some recap at the start of this episode and that feels very odd for this show. The show doesn't do recap. Um, so hopefully we'll start moving forward quickly, but, uh, but yeah, I was glad to spend some more time with the gems. Now you haven't seen any Steven universe as I understand it. No, this is um, – I am uh, – I'm just all Gravity Falls all the time and you can't – and you're just legally not allowed to watch uh, both at the <laughs> same time. Uh, yeah, no, I mean this is one of those things where again um, the, these shows – I know it's only – they're only 15 minutes, right? So they're, they're the sort of half-length shows but they tend to – like they just accumulate so fast, these shows particularly with the Steven bombs where you're like, you know, you turn around and it's like, oh, there's five new episodes now. Um, and so when you're sort of, I'm trying to like wean myself off of shotgunning shows just in the name of something like productivity. Um, it is, it's a, it's a show that can be a little hard to, to 
sort of catch up with. But like, again, it's a show that like there's absolutely zero animus when I say any of this. Like everything I've heard about Steven Universe makes it sound like just such a special show and a really like necessary show to exist in the larger TV conversation. And and another one where it's just really nice to just not be exactly the same kind of show, particularly one geared at younger viewers that we tend to get. So um, a big, a big thumbs up to um, Steven universe, just, just as a concept, like beyond anything else about it, like even like irrespective of its quality, I'm just glad it exists, but I'm also uh Enough very smart people have said that it's great for me to feel pretty confident that, yeah, it's 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 a worthwhile show. Fair enough. Um, if you do get the chance to watch it at some point, I look forward to your thoughts. Um, but, yeah, like you say, it makes me happy that this is a show that exists out in the world that kids are watching. Um, I'm going to mention The Leftovers here. I know you haven't seen it. Um, and we could have a fantastic chat about, about The Leftovers because I know you have uh, strong feelings about the kind of TV that you'd like to watch and why – Though I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, as I understand it, you're you don't have any animus towards leftover. It's just you don't want to watch a show of this tone. Um, yeah, we're exactly. Running short on time. <laughs> no, the sort of the sort of quick version of this is that, and this was the reason why I jumped off Walking Dead. Kind of the reason I jumped off Game of Thrones. Like just just like shows that are sort of so fundamentally bleak and grim. Like it's something that I can I can I'm fine with getting on board with. Is like like a movie where it's a very clear transaction of like you're going to spend like two or so hours in this universe. Um, it's going to be a hard. It's going to be kind of difficult. Um, and then you're going to kind of get out of it. And I know like a lot of people find like these shows like weirdly like enlivening or um, positive in their way, but they just don't they don't speak to me in that way. So something like The Leftovers just is such a like fundamentally structurally sad show that it just gets oppressive to me as something that I would invest like multiple hours of my life in, which I think makes me unusual among modern TV watchers. This is not saying like a point I'm proselytizing, but that's like my honest like reason why a lot of these shows start to lose my my interest. Game of Thrones actually was just that I, I got tired. I just stopped caring which uh, which rich white person was going to end up on the Iron Throne. Like it was such like it was the like most stereotypical like whinging modern lefty reason to not watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> but it was like a principled socialist stand against Game of Thrones. But um, but yeah, leftovers. I will say I saw one episode um, because Christopher Eccleston's in it, so we watched it on for debating Doctor Who discussion purposes. Um, and I thought, again, it was really well done, but it didn't like grab me as something like, this is something that I want to spend more time in this universe. It's like, this was a fun, or not fun, but this was an engrossing hour of television, but like, it's just too bleak for me to spend much time here. Um, and I completely understand. That's one of those things with, with PTV. There's a lot of really good TV. So you can you don't feel like you have to watch the handful of really good TV that's out there because there's so much of it. So you can be more selective. You can find the really good TV that fits uh, the the tone that you're looking at for or how you want to spend what is supposed to be a leisure activity of watching TV. But this week's episode of The Leftovers, A Matter of Geography, I thought was fantastic. I liked it even better than the premiere. I loved the premiere's listeners from last week will will know. Um and they just they just basically killed me with their uh that opening couch scene that we got when we get the uh the Garveys, a uh, Detective Garvey and, and uh the Carrie Coon character just just talking to each other and just being completely 100% honest with the things that have been going on with them and just the the emotional just the rawness and just how open they are in that scene just slayed me and it, that scene took it from a show that I really like or really admire into one that I love 
Um, and hopefully I won't regret that, <laughs> but I really, really did love this episode. There's so much interesting, uh, going that things that are going on, the way that they're, uh, developing these characters, the way that, that at least the first two episodes of the season focus on different characters and the little, uh, meta nod to that. Are they a character in your story or are you a character in their story? Which is something, you know, head and Dowd says, says to Justin Thoreau this week. Um, I'm glad they found a way to keep and Dowd in the game, in the show, despite her character being dead. Uh, that seems like it's working very well. I like how they continue to flesh out Miracle, the city of Miracle, um, with uh, there, there being this this auction and like lottery to get into the town and everything and uh, I, they're also developing their mysteries i did not expect that ending to happen so no i thought that it was just going to be a lot of um th things happening in this season um from the premiere that we just weren't going to get an answer to that like oh is it metaphysical or is it normal but based on the end of this episode no we're going to get some some answers uh and i look forward to that but more than that, I just, I love the tone of this show. Uh, the, not not even specifically the tone, but I love the the the, the, the way it explores its characters. Um, it does feel like a different show somewhat in the second season. It feels less um, internal and more about characters trying to reach out to each other in a way that maybe they weren't quite so much um, or as, as successfully in the first season. First, The first season felt like people struggling, and this season feels like people like the characters have moved a little bit beyond that. Um, and so whether that continues, I, it remains to be seen. As I understand it, each episode, uh, at least of the first batch, follows a different perspective. But I really did love this week's episode, and uh, I hope that the season continues that uh, in this in this fashion because it's going to be a top 10 contender for me, certainly, if, if the whole season maintains the quality of the first two episodes. But we're running long, so I'm going to go swiftly on to our last two shows of the week and genre, and we can kind of talk about them together. And that's The Flash premiere, The Man Who Saved Central City, and The Arrow premiere, Green Arrow. Arrow's coming off its weakest season. Well, one arguably it's weakest season yeah i think i think when you you have you you always like grade a first season on a bit of a curve and you kind of take what the like the back half of it was like and you say that's kind of the quality of the first season because you sort of just write off the first half um the third season there were and and by the way i don't think i ever properly thanked you for subbing in to write the last two um reviews of the the third season um for the av club while i was off in europe um so thank you very much for that kate um I think that the the issue with that third season in a nutshell was just like I think at a certain point it just got so ungrounded and so like just insular like I just remember this point like when I finally got a chance to watch like the final um uh, the, fi the 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 finale and there's like a scene where like someone's like looking through like a telescopic sight at like um uh, Oliver Queen and Ra's al Ghul like standing on a bridge like having like a sword and it just looks so ridiculous. And I'm just like, this is the issue with this show in a nutshell, where it's like, this is like super serious and grim, like from two feet. But like, if you like step back at all, it just becomes the most ridiculous, silly, like weightless thing ever. So um, I think the show needed to like refocus on Star City and which is now it's now been renamed. So bringing it more back in line with the comics. Um, and I think it needed to have more of a sense of like, this is like the world that it inhabits. And it's not about this sort of weird mystical meets like Batman begins retelling that they were sort of doing in the third season. Um, so, um, yeah, so I, I thought the, this premiere was a step in a big step in the right direction for a couple of reasons. Um, as a fan, it's just nice that they finally have completed the journey to him actually calling himself the green arrow. Like, it's just like, that's a nice box to have ticked. And again, it's that idea of, 
kind of like as I was saying with the Muppets, like kind of that thing of just like being like cool with like embracing your own uncoolness. Like, yeah, Green Arrow is like kind of a dorky superhero or kind of a silly superhero name, but you're just sort of owning it. And I like that. I like that the show's reached that point. Um, and then also bringing in uh, Neil McDonough to play the bad guy for what I believe is going to be the season spanning bad guy as Damien Dark. To play um, the Neil McDonough character? To play, to play mi- basically like mystical powers Robert Quarles, basically, for yeah. those of us who have seen Justified Season 3. And if you haven't seen Justified Season 3, get on that. It's not the most tight season of television, but it is a lot of fun because Neil McDonough is a psychopath. And whenever <laughs> Neil McDonough plays a psychopath, great things happen yeah so so what did you think of uh oliver in suburbia i mean i kind of loved that he's a really good cook i i was having a lot of fun with that i I really i just i really love the the thing that i really respected about it was that they really aggressively said very definitively the whole idea of like super heroics as a compulsion maybe that's true for some people but oliver actually can walk away from it and i and I think that that was actually really important in like selling the idea that this is going to be the green arrow now as opposed to the arrow or the hood or whatever. Um, and it was just like – it was like so adorable that he was so happy like being this suburban uh, – I was going to say house dad. I mean it, that honestly did not seem very far away based on a lot of the discussions. And like he's like made friends with the two least cool suburbanites ever. And um, I thought it was a really smart move to have Felicity be the one who was totally bored and totally unsatisfied with that life. I think it was a really nice inversion of what you would generally expect. So um, yeah, no, I mean – uh, I, I thought that like overall um, this felt like a real step in in the right direction. Um, I'll be curious to see as, as they um, sort of – I mean John Barrowman is technically I think still a regular on the show. So I'll be curious to know how if at all they integrated him in there. Um, the big twist at the end of the episode of revealing that uh, – um, Detective Lance, I know that's not his um, rank anymore, but he'll always be Detective Lance, um, is um, seemingly working with Damien Dark. Like that – That I, I wasn't the biggest fan of that just because I've always liked him as the sort of – even if he's a dick, like the kind of incorruptible – like even when he's a little bit of like the Javert style of incorruptible, like it's still like he is kind of the moral beacon of the show even if he's a kind of uncompromising um, – recovering alcoholic uh beacon so i'll be curious to see how they play that one. Oh, and then there's also the flash forward to someone is dead in six months um ah, can we, t- we had, briefly we gotta talk about yeah. that because i'm sorry if you're gonna do that you gotta show me the name yeah and the writers don't know who it is yet as they've said so uh i just it feel it felt like a fuck you to the audience to me that is fair, and I also like that they were preemptively uh, uh, arranging for the fact that, like, uh, Grant Gustin, they can only bring him in so much by having him say, sorry, I missed the funeral. Like, I really, really enjoy um, the silliness of, uh, of like, having to preemptively cover your ass while also not being willing to. I didn't know that they don't know who's going to be on there. Um, if you're going to kill someone... That's fine. Have there be a reason. Not like, oh, we needed to shake things up and add drama. So we're going to kill one of you guys. Don't know who yet. I mean, what do you think it's like to have read that script? (laughs) If you're you're Oliver, (laughs) if you're uh, Stephen Amell, you're like, well... I'm st- I still have a job next year, but uh... I st- yeah, I'm good. But literally anyone else um, yeah. could could get the boot. It can't um, be Felicity based on that performance. I no, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think it can be Thea. God, I really hope it's not Diggle. Like I, I just am. I would be at the same time. Like I, 
I, I, I think that there's a very good argument to be made that the show has never quite known what to do with Diggle. Um, and like that's that's definitely not on David Ramsey. That's on the show. Um, and I do think that that would actually make log- some logical sense based on the reaction that we see from him. But I also really hope it's not Diggle because he's like the original like partner that that Oliver had. I'd be I'd be sad if they got rid of him. But I also don't honestly know who else it could be and elicit that it would be really sad if we've reached a point where that's the reaction laurel's death um provokes in him although i know there'd be a lot of fans who are like that's far too strong a reaction to laurel uh, <laughs> um because people do hate laurel but anyway so that so that's arrow um i think if you lost faith in the show towards the end of season three it is worth taking um another look at i think this is a in the right direction um but at the same time i i would not say that it's like a, it, it did not feel like this was like oh my god a revelation it just felt like yeah this feels like a good course correction what about uh flash um i'm pretty on board with flash i like the fact that uh we're apparently about to go full-on earth 2 um that we're we're like doing like parallel universes because i mean this has always been the thing with the flash in the comics is um basically um bringing in the sort of original golden age flash and teaming him up with the silver age flash so teaming up jay garrick with uh with barry allen and indeed as we find at the end of the episode um jay garrick shows up um who has been very cw ified which is to say made younger and hotter than jay garrick is usually portrayed in the comics but that's fine um i think that the sort of emotional beats of this episode like it's one of those things where i can never tell like what they're trying to do with say firestorm like it always like i mean some of it is also like knowing that they're setting up victor garber to go off to legends of tomorrow and i'm not at all clear what they're trying to do with like is robbie amell just that hard to like book consistently that they have to keep like throwing him into like uh wormholes and things to 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 like you know uh so that they can only like is, is robbie amell that expensive like are the amell cousins that you know powerful i'm i don't necessarily doubt it i just i just want to understand what they're doing with that um but you know I, overall like from a sort of just general craziness perspective um i think this could be a very fun season of the flash because i think it is embracing all aspects of the mythos um i thought the way in which they uh finally freed and then like sent off papa flash like away was really cheap um yeah, i get that it that was some a, bullshit is what I that was i get it i get it from a storytelling perspective i get the fact that this is not about um grant gustin and john wesley ship like just hanging out as father and son but i also feel like if you are going to invest in the emotional reality of the characters at all you have to accept the fact that if you're going to free henry allen you need to give an episode to him like just trying to like understand himself again and come to terms with because i i understand like the, the sort of like the sh- like the, they're giving us the shorthand version of basically like he is severely traumatized from having spent 15 years in prison for a crime he did not commit and he needs space to like rediscover himself. I also think he is in a situation where he's incredibly vulnerable and like if this were like real life and he said I need to go, I would be worried is he going to be alive in like a month? Like and I think that again – I I think that you know it's not Henry Allen is not going to like die off screen or something in like a bar fight or, or something darker than that but it's like it did not feel very it it felt very it rang very false and it felt very much like just moving pieces quickly around on the chessboard because they had other things that 
they wanted to deal with, and um, that that was a uh, that was a bummer to me. That was a false step. Um, but I'm also excited. Um, I they have said that Tom Cavanaugh is still a regular on the show. I think Tom Cavanaugh raises just the general level of talent on this show significantly. Not to speak ill of the other cast members, but I just think what he's I just I just think he's in a position where he can just like knock that material out of the park and is great in that kind of mentor role and bring him back as in a, as a presumably non villainous version of that, some sort of alternate universe, presumably maybe the Earth Two version of that. Um, I'm excited to see um, Cavanaugh back as Harrison Wells full time, which I think is due to happen at some point. So overall. I'm pretty excited about Flash, though I will admit, like it's a lot of it is more for its like its superhero goofiness and pyrotechnics than it is necessarily for like really well observed character building. Yeah, I, I did like this premiere quite a bit, uh, except for that total bullshit. Uh, he, like seriously, he might as well turn to the camera and said, "Here's the thing, guys. Uh, Barry already has two father figures, so we can't really have space for a third one on the show. So I'm I'm gonna go over there." But you know, like that's just. It's just lazy writing because uh, he doesn't fit. It's just like, if he doesn't fit into this, then don't free him. If you're going to free him, you have to do the, the, the legwork. Even if that just means he says, I'm going to need a lot of space. I'm going to need, you know, I've been. In yeah. It's... And then you just see like a scene of him at the end, you know, like going to and having a meal with his dad. Um, and the dad is clearly still traumatized. Like, and so you just have that be like kind of a recurring thing, but don't spend much time. Like there are ways you could do that. It's one of those things where like – and I know this is the most random connection to make, but I already went on and extended Sullivan's Travels riff, so so whatever. But like it's like it's like the end of the Mother Simpson episode of The Simpsons where it's like um, like you know they bring back Homer's mom as a fugitive from the law and have her leave very, very suddenly. And like – and it's like a joke ending, but like they buy it back because they literally just have like Homer over the end credits like sitting and like looking at the stars and like music plays. And it's a really affecting moment. It's one of the more emotional moments in Simpsons history to me. And I feel like just to like let it sit as like Barry finally being reunited on the other side of the bars with his dad and his dad basically saying, I just – Peace need- out. <laughs> I, but like in a way where it's like let's see that hurt. Let's just see that hit Barry and let's just see him like taken on board. And I still think that it's so inelegantly handled that I have real trouble imagining that it would actually work. But um, I would be willing to to say that I could I could see how that could how, – how you could pull that off. But it's got to be the most important thing that happens to Barry by the ep- end of the episode. And I think as I think you kind of alluded to, it has to be something that is fundamentally about where Henry Allen is at as opposed to like him wanting to clear the decks for Barry to be the best Barry that he can be. Because the idea that Barry would somehow – and I mean, I think I understand what he's getting at with like, you know, you, I can't have you like being my minder. Like I need my space to rediscover myself. You need your space to be you. Like I get all that, but no, 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 that's, no it no. doesn't. Yeah. That's not how that, that's not how that works. Um, but I did think the rest of it worked pr- really well. I liked the, 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 st- the way it began and then you cut to the time forward and I thought that all w- w- did go together very well. Um, I will see Robbie Mel at some point in the future, I'm sure. Um, but for now, I liked wh- how, where Caitlin's at, and I liked the progression of that. Um, on the whole, you know, the, like the little moment with Victor Garber and uh, and then with Cisco. Uh, um, uh, I can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head. I apologize. Uh, but that the, you know, like little things like that are why I enjoy the Flash. So I, on the whole, I think it did work very well, and I'm very excited for Jake Garrick. But what And can means- I just can I also oh, just ahead. say I just really like the idea and I think it's uh, Carlos Valdez is the name of the yes. Cisco's actor yes. by the way. Um I just 
really like this sort of mental image in my head of everyone on the set just sort of shiftily looking at each other and they're just like when is Victor Garber going to work out that he's on a CW show? Like, like, like who is conning Victor? No like, one like, tell him. No one. Like he, he seems cool with it, but just like, it's one of those things where it's just like the, the ridiculously cool person has shown up to like your nerd party. And just like, no one is like willing to like say, Victor, are you sure you're in the, are you in the right place? Um, we're not cool enough for you. <laughs> we are, you are, you were in Argo. You were on Alien. Yes, you can. You have better things to do, Victor Garber. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, that that's just uh, I. But I really, I really love the fact that Victor Garber is on that show and just giving it his all week in, week out. It's it's a lot of fun, and indeed is about to be the co lead on the third Arrowverse show. It's just great times for superhero television. Definitely. Well, what wins your week in genre and drama? Oh boy. Well, it's a it's a tight one between Arrow and Flash. I. Th- I think I gotta give it to the Flash. I think as much as I love Arrow finally embracing the green, um, I I think the Flash is just is just so much fun, and I don't see any reason for it to be less fun in its second season. Like I think that's the thing that I just love how much it has just embraced the ridiculousness of itself and is just willing to roll with it. So a lot of love for what the Flash is all about. And I'm going to give it to The Leftovers, uh, which did really blow me away this week. But I did have a lot of fun with the Flash and Arrow premiere. So hopefully that will continue moving forward. But for now, we're going to take a break and come back with our DVD shelf to talk about Life on Mars UK. My name is Sam Tyler. I had an accident and I woke up in 1973. Am I mad? In a coma? Or back in time? Whatever's happened, it's like I've landed on a different planet. Now maybe if I can work out the reason... I can get home. Back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kolzik, TV editor of PopOptic.com, and I'm joined this week once again uh, from the AV Club and debating Doctor Who. It's Alistair Wilkins. Uh, thank you for staying on with me to talk some British TV. This week we're talking Life on Mars, the UK original, as opposed to the ABC remake. And I we we can get into that if we want, but I think we'll mostly just stay focused on this show. This was one that I had been meaning to to see for quite a while but it just hadn't gotten around to you so thank you so much for for choosing it why did you want to talk about life on mars so i remember this show as just being one of the first shows um i guess it it, it started up in uh 2006 2007 i believe it was right around the same time that uh doctor who uh, revived and indeed, um, the fact that the characters, uh, the main character Sam Tyler, his last name is Tyler, is a is a tip of the cap to the uh, RTD era. Who that is an explicit link or not explicit, but it is something they've they've admitted. Um, and I just and I just remember being very um, curious about this show when I would see like kind of promos for 
it um, during like from the VHSs that like my uncle would tape in the UK of Doctor Who series one and send. And I think it was one of the very first shows. I guess I was I was just about when I was like finishing up high school, going off to college that I watched this show. And I remember it being one of the very first shows where I was really aware of how impressive it was. Technically, um, one of the big things that I remember just being really struck with as I was watching it at the time as so, and, and sort of some of the first really active watching was like the sound design of the show is just is just amazing. Um, so I think it's always been a very technically impressive show to me. And then the just the concept of it, which we can get into, is one of the most complex ideas for a show ever and one of the most ambiguous. And it's also interesting in that it, it is a very specific character piece in this incarnation and then it had a continuation ashes to ashes which we won't be talking about here we might talk about again some time uh, down the road uh where they sort of took this and made it into a larger more mythology driven mystery so it's always interesting like kind of going back to this where the sort of central question of the show is very much a character thing um it got a little turned around later oh and also um john sim and philip glenister are two fantastic actors doing fantastic works as two very different uh cops so that's the sort of short version before we get into what life on mars is all about as to why i wanted to talk about this show some of the things I've, i love about it well for those who don't know life on mars is a a two series show so it has two uh two eight season eight episode seasons i should say hilariously uh yeah it ran for 16 episodes and it said everything it wanted to say and finished up in two seasons the american show was canceled unceremoniously after airing 17 episodes so i just i love it's the most perfect explication of the difference between u.s and uk tv but yes that's delightful and it's about uh it's about a cop at dci uh sam tyler Uh, and i'm glad when i found out that it was actually a specific they asked like one of the writers asked his daughter what the last name should be and she said Tyler because of Rose Tyler. Because the first thing I thought when he said, I'm Sam Tyler, was like, uh, I'm pretty sure you mean Rose. And I'm going to go watch season one of Doctor Who. Series one of Doctor Who, I should say. But anyways, um, uh, he, he's, he, gets, um, he gets hit by a car and wakes up in 1973. But not only does he wake up in 1973, he's wearing different clothes. He has a period-appropriate badge. Uh, he is supposed to have been transferred to this new department, which is... In the future, that's his actual department, but he's come from another town, um, so the people are expecting it to be his first day of work, so he doesn't know anybody, but he shouldn't know anybody. Um, and so what is going on? And, and pretty quickly, like the, the voiceover for the intro says, you know, I don't know if, I, if I'm crazy or if I'm in a coma or if I've gone back in time, uh, but pretty quickly they establish, okay, well, something. He's either crazy or he's in a coma. And because we saw him in the present, I'm pretty sure he's not just straight up crazy. So it's some combination of things. And and the way that they have the um the, the they play with sound, they play with perception almost immediately of he's hearing voices of his family, uh, of doctors. He's he's like hearing phone calls that no one else can hear. The television will flicker on and sort of like the presenters will start talking to him. Um, so you know that that's basically what ha- makes it the most sense to be happening is he is in a coma and this is all kind of bleeding in. But that doesn't mean that maybe somehow also he's his consciousness is because it could be it's sci-fi. Who knows? Maybe his consciousness has shifted back in time somehow, but he's also in a coma. Um, so the way that they interconnect those two tends to work very well. I do think it's good that it 
only ran two seasons because it gets a bit gimmicky. But on the whole, it's a really creative show. And like you say, the visual style, the 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 way that they use the sound design, it's all very effective. Yeah, there were um, precisely 16 episodes in this premise and arguably really only 15 because there is that uh, second season episode where um, Sam overdoses and like they like let like because the thing about this show that doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily obvious as you're first watching it. But then after a while, you suddenly realize, oh, good Lord, John Sim is in literally every single scene. Like it is told completely from his perspective. Um, There is not a single scene that he is not in, um, which is insane and like it, it it is one of the great acting performances from john sim and if you've only maybe seen him from his uh work on doctor who which is um what's the adjective we're going to use for that kate interesting uh, uh, i'm gonna say that this made me like that way less because it's like he could be doing this guys yeah and what and i think it's it's by all accounts what he wanted to be doing as the master was something a lot you know, more restrained and closer, but it's an amazing performance um, as Sam Tyler that John Sim does. It, it's a great sort of quietly volcanic performance. Like I think there's a lot that he's sort of holding in at all points because he is this extremely straight laced by the book cop um, who finds himself in this sort of cowboy old West period of policing. And indeed that's very much like, I think, I mean, it, I think Gene, no, I, th- I think it's only in ashes to ashes that like Gene literally starts like wearing like, some cowboy stuff but he definitely already likes cowboys at this point like it's definitely like the idiom in which he like understands um policing um but yeah no i mean i think i think it's one of those things where you know the mystery of the show always felt very secondary to like uh, it, it never seemed like it was super interested in like really seriously developing um the the time travel theory is a plausible alternative to the coma theory, although they they sort of faint in that direction a little bit towards the end of the second season, a little bit. But but generally speaking, it's fairly um, you know consistent in saying it's mostly a coma. I think that's like the best way of understanding it. Like like it's never it's not totally a coma, but it's mostly a coma is what we're dealing with here. Um, and as I say, like I th- I think that. They- got about 16 really really strong episodes out of this premise of just letting these characters um sort of bounce off one another and seeing these sort of different philosophies of policing like play out um but but also you know this sort of person who is having real trouble like fitting into a world that just has no particular place for him like it really makes you realize just just how big a gulf there is between uh, 2006 2007 and 1973 and how at sea sam feels and is and and this thing where it's like the show because it's told so completely from his perspective you only see this in passing but just just how insane he seems to everyone around him yeah definitely and having like because this is just it's a buddy cop show it's what it is it's a it's it's two you know oil and water uh people put in into a cop car and what's gonna happen (laughs) this is like a good way to describe uh the the sam tyler character is Imagine Simon Pegg from the beginning of Hot Fuzz mm-hmm. stuck having to deal with like this, this, you know, very, yeah, cowboy is a good way to put it, uh, not PC. Let's just go beat people up and hope that they did it <laughs> kind of policing. Uh, but but in a position where he is not, in a, he can't just like tell them how to do their job because he'll just get fired. So like trying to make all that, you know, kind of work together. It, it is very effective. Um, having 
the cases and the, the episodes that I most ended up enjoying were, of course, all the the ones that were grounded in that dynamic um, between between the two leads and having, um, you know, the ones that always stick out to me are the ones where they're basically they're in a bet over who's right and who's wrong, and they both end up being right and also both being wrong, and those are always the ones that. Uh, connected most uh, I connected most with and I enjoyed the most but it did threaten to become a bit too rote in that way which is why I like some of the the developments they do like when we start having oh this is going to be the episode where we meet his mentor and he meets his mentor um, and then this is the one where he meets his girlfriend in the futures uh, who's actually Punjabi in two episodes we see her uh, or one and a half sort of um her mom you know it's like it gets a bit too one-to-one between coma and and flashback but given that it is a coma it makes sense well the reason it can't just straight up be a coma though is we need a reason for him to play along and so that's why it can't just be oh they're all figments of his imagination it's all in his head because then there's no stakes and he could theoretically he should be able to control what's happening so um, i think they they thread the needle with that very well yeah it's it's one of those things where if you think about life on mars for too long it will kind of fall apart um but at the same time um you know part of what um i think works about it is i think it i think it is really anchored by um a pair of really strong performances um, right at the center of the show. Um, John Sim is the more sort of quietly intense and then Philip Glenister is just chewing all scenery in sight. Um, and really, I don't think there's a weak link in, in the central cast. I think everyone in there, I mean, they're much more playing like archetypes. It's not as necessarily consistently as interesting what they're being asked to do, but but I think they all play their roles um, very effectively. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's that thing where whenever you're like, wait, why do I not like, why do I care about this? This could all just be a figment of Sam's imagination. That's generally when Gene Hunt sort of bounds into the room, punches you in the face and tells you to <laughs> shut up and stop, you know, thinking about stupid stuff. We've got to go uh, catch a blagger or something. So like it, there, that is part of what the, the charm of the show is, is that it definitely has a lot of room for matters of the head, but it's also like willing to punch you in it as well and tell you to just shape up. So well, uh, and it, it also has plenty of space for the heart because you know, yeah. another really significant character for me uh, and uh, maybe this is not who you go, go to but for me is the Joanne Froggett character playing his mom who shows up a few times and those episodes where we get Sam's connection to his mother and also to his father those were gut punches for me yeah I mean and that that ends up being kind of the big reveal of the first uh season of life on mars like like uh the sort of sam recognizing the truth about his dad and um you know sort of insinuating himself in the life of of this life that he no longer has and probably can't have again like it is it's really well done and it is um i think one of those things where it works because the emotional logic, the show really commits to it. Like I think that it's one of those things where if the show blinked at all, like if the show like at all like lost track of why any of this matters, I think that it would all just like fall apart. But it's just like it, it's so fundamentally is caring about Sam's journey and like the fact that Sam remains invested in it and the fact that John Sim can sell how much like he is trying to put some things right and how much like – you know, there's sort of this vague sense that that Sam um, was very unfulfilled in the present and very much in a quiet way trapped in the past even before he showed up in 1973. And they don't like overdo that, but I think there's enough there for it to make sense and for there to be this sense that the the show is like this journey is important to Sam, um, not just as a sort of matter of survival while he's pretty sure that his brain is shutting down. 
Yeah, and, like, and again, so much of this comes back to John Sim's performance. So, like, when Sam smells his dad's jacket, it's just this this really brief moment, but they the direction, the way that they they hold on him, and like from a little further away, and let him experience that, and we just it's really powerful. And um, and again, there's if you follow it as straightforward, what what you're seeing happen actually is happening. He's traveled back in time. At the end of that episode, he's changed the timeline. But if he's in a coma, he's just uncovered a blocked off memory. And this isn't happening. But he is he has remembered what he did see his father do at that wedding before the father left. And that so so there's emotion, there's powerful, like there's weight to this no matter what, whether he's actually caused his father to leave or is remembered why his father left either way. Like you say, it holds true to these emotional truths, uh, these emotional cores of the series. Uh, and that's what really lets it, lets it work. Yeah. And I, I think that it's one of those things where, um, again, like this was something that I think that the show, it's interesting to compare that with ashes to ashes, the, the follow-up show, which is worth watching. It's not, I don't think it's as strong as life on Mars, but it ends up going in much more experimental areas and, uh, is one of those things where ends up doing things that are a lot weirder than, um, than, um, life on Mars to a great extent. Um, and, and some of it works, some of it doesn't, but like, it is that thing where it's much more willing to play around with the idea of maybe they really are changing time here. I think it keeps coming back to, it doesn't matter because the key thing is, is that irrespective of the precise mechanics of this universe, the effect on Sam is still the same. And John Sim is communicating what it is to him. Now we've gotten this far talking about life on Mars, uh, without diving in with the finale and what happens there. But we that is going to happen so i'm just gonna say it's a very interesting and uh definitely discussion worthy finale so we will be talking at some point here moving forward about spoilers we will include spoilers for uh the the end of the series so you've been warned if you have not seen life on mars yet and you want to see it unspoiled then pause the podcast go check it out find it at your local library and and come on back because ahead there be spoilers the end of the show which in theory is the bleakest thing ever or you know is a really insane thing to do it, it again it makes emotional sense and is something that um is is anchored so much in like the the, the finishing of sam's journey that it is fundamentally um there's certainly room for sadness given that it is Sam committing suicide basically but at the same time it feels like the correct um or the right I should really say conclusion to the journey that he's been on and so it works it plays and um you know and it's and again it's it's like really down I think fundamentally to some very clever threading of the needle from a writing perspective I think it's from a direction and just a design of the show that really knows exactly how to balance the different realities like i think this is something that they say like when he does finally wake up in in 2006 2007 i I think it's 2006 um like they intentionally like shot it to make it just seem like the blandest most horribly depressing world that he re-enters into like it's shot in these most awful desaturated blues and like you want nothing more than for sam to like escape from from this world by any means necessary and get back to the colorful 1973 and maybe that's not a healthy perspective to have maybe um i think there's room for that but it also you know like it's this thing where maybe maybe sam is going a little insane and and the the sort of 
fun of the show is it gets you to go a little insane with him and to to feel like that this is actually a worthwhile uh, conclusion for his journey. So, you know, it is. Is a it, it's a show that is in its in its way very insular in the sense that it's it's a, it has a logic that really only makes sense on its own terms. Yet at the same time, I think is very accessible because again, it just it, the performances are what breathe so much life into it. And I think again, if you didn't have Sim and Glenister working together, you need both of them for it to be the successful sort of transaction with the audience and for it to all make sense and hang together. Um, and and as you say, like a lot of the the sort of more emotional. Um, character beats that you get from bringing in people like Sam's mom. And I, and I would also say um, Liz White as Annie, the, the love interest slash the sort of long suffering um, sidekick character who just is basically putting up with this clearly insane, but brilliant um, boss of hers and Sam. So, you know, there's a lot of pieces of this that are very finely balanced to make life on Mars work, but it's a, it's a show that's definitely stayed with me, um, you know, six plus years um, since I first discovered it. You are uh, you are a lot kinder on the finale than I am. I think I like the finale, but it doesn't work for me. The the I think I I needed more time with him in the present again uh, because it just feels like a shortcut. It feels like um, well, we this is a show and we know it's a show and we know the audience is invested in these characters in the past. So they like they don't make it a choice. They they don't actually present any kind of world. We don't spend any time in the future again we see his mom and after all of that you know the, the emotional investment we've had with the mother and and even just the voice of the mother co- coming back so frequently throughout the series there's like half of a scene with the mom and that's it um we, they don't bring back archie punjabi again in the future uh they don't bring back anything like i i needed if if i was gonna really invest in a choice um i needed to it to be one and so for me, it just felt like a shortcut to to answer the question of what's been going on, which is a thing I do think they needed to do, um, and then to undo it. Um, so I do, I mean, I, I could, I don't, I'm not saying that he can't have that choice. I'm not saying that, oh, because he commits suicide, um, that is, it, it's wrong because suicide is bad. And no, but it just, it felt like a, uh, it, it felt overly convenient and unexplored. No, I, I actually think that that's a fair point, and I and I I remember having that uncertainty when I first watched it. I mean, like I think it's one of those things where I kind of go back and forth on it a little bit. Like I, I think that you are definitely like spelling out a, the other reaction that I had to it, but I I do think. I I think that it's this thing where I just wish that they'd somehow found a way to kind of clear his mom from the show like earlier. Like like I didn't necessarily care so much about the ex girlfriend because I think it was very clear that she was moving on, but like. It was this feeling of almost like two thousand, like the two thousands were their own unreality, and and like were not meant to be completely real either, and and like it it had a it had its own dreamlike quality, like the return to reality in the final episode, and I think that the part of the because they portrayed it that way, it was. It, it felt like a little less of an issue that he was basically like, you know, voluntarily giving up on all aspects of his life. I don't I don't know. It's it is um, it's something that I think is a fair criticism of it. But I also would say that on balance where like I think as shortcuts go, it's an OK one given the amount of work the show puts in before and and after that. But but yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's it's flawless. I think it 
I, I, I have to be honest and say that it worked the first time I saw it and that is an important thing and, and you know that came at a very – and that was when I was watching it like on, on a more episodic basis and had like a multi-year investment, I guess two years uh, <laughs> investment in the show. Um, but possibly when you are um, binging on it and you sort of have had more of a cumulative sense of maybe some of the similarities between episodes and also the bringing back of certain – 2000s era elements um it's it's a little harder to not necessarily forgive it but just to kind of get on board with that like i think that when you're when i was watching it on a more episodic basis the 70s just felt like where you wanted to be so completely and that was and that was enough but you know again i think it's fair or they even just could have made it feel like he had a rounded life to start out with because or they that he didn't i should say in the premiere in the pilot because what we see of him we just see a very little bit of him when he's at work and he's working a case and we have no reason to think he's doesn't fit in or like that he why wouldn't he have a whole group of work colleagues and of friends and of family that would be very concerned for him so therefore when he comes back why wouldn't they still be there um and because they don't show us him not having that I think that it, we're safe to assume he should. And so then when he wakes up and that none of that is explored, none of that is shown, well, shouldn't his, like he was DCI, shouldn't he have a team of people who are excited that he's alive again? Um, I don't know. I think, I think sort of those themes yeah. are what, th- those ideas are why it didn't quite work as well. No, that that's fair. And again, I think it's one of those things where um, when there's a little more distance and where you feel more completely ensconced in the 70s era, like I, I, I just remember it not being as big an issue, but at the same time, I, I, I definitely like intellectually felt a lot of the same issues. They just didn't register as strongly. I think the other thing was I do remember when it first aired, like it was definitely like a point of, of not necessarily contention, but definitely a point of discussion like, did he ever actually wake up? Um, was that just another uh, dream world? And then he kind of made the final choice to to commit to the nineteen to 1973. Um, again, that ultimately got overridden because Ashes to Ashes made it clear that, yeah, he did wake up because that's what sets up the lead character of um, Ashes to Ashes because she gets the information from, from Sam about this world and that like informs her own journey into um, a later era. But um, – you know, it it it's something where again, I think I think it's a fair I think it's a fair criticism to to lodge, but I think it also possibly works a little better in the original way in which it was uh, depicted. Uh, let's talk about uh, just a couple other quick elements and kind of yeah. shoot some back and forth. One of the things that I love about this show is its soundtrack. There's some mm-hmm. great soundtrack choices here. I, I I think I, I I believe I own the soundtrack album for for this show. It's Pretty incredible. And obviously building it around uh, Bowie. I mean, both shows are built around Bowie. First Life on Mars, then then Ashes to Ashes. Um, the reprise of Life on Mars at, at various points, I think, is really well done. I mean, it, it's, it's part of the more general thing of just being amazingly well designed from a sound perspective, whether it's like when they're bringing in um, the, the sounds in the hospital or, again, as you say, like just, just the music. Like, And it's one of those things where it is on some level like a greatest hits of like 70s rock, but at the same time, it never feels like it's kind of going to that Forrest Gump territory of like, hey, here's a song you like. Like it, it always seems to feel appropriate when they bring it out. I think it's one of the best chosen soundtracks of any TV show I've seen. I also really like how they balance the the effect that Tyler is having on his precinct on on this group of of cops by having them, you know, him pulling them towards the future as far as forensics and recording interviews, etc. While 
with while not just having them all of a sudden start feeling like a modern police uh, police office or, or group. Uh, I think they, they balance that pretty well. Yeah, I think one of the things that actually does really well is um, the use of um, Marshall Lancaster's character, uh, Chris, because I think he's the one who kind of to some extent takes an interest because he's sort of like he's sort of young and innocent but also like ambitious enough to think, oh, maybe there is something to this. And so there's some there's some smart things in like allowing him to like have a go at some of those ideas. So again, it's it's um all very um smartly done. And then also in like Annie, you can clearly see like this is like the beginnings of what um you know they the the modern police force would look like when they start listening to people like her. So there's there's a lot of um aspects to this that I think are um are are super well well done from that perspective. What are some other elements that stand out to you? Use of 70s culture I think is really fun. One of my favorite um, openings and it's not a show that I was – like I know British – I do know British TV really well, like better than I should just because again I'm from the UK originally. Um, but I think it's Camberwick Green is the children's show that like they do an opening where it's like a 70s children's show, like stop motion animated, which they do a version of with um, Sam and Gene Hunt like beating up a, a suspect as like this adorable um, stop motion animated version Love of Gene it. Hunt. And Love even if it. you don't know what they're referencing, like it's just so well done and so amusingly um, mixing um, mixing styles and genres. And I love that, like basically, like a, an ODing Sam Tyler like shows up in the precinct and like basically tells Gene like you can do all these horrible things, you can you know abuse suspects, you can bend the laws, but you do not you do not show up in Camberwick Green. Um, so <laughs> it's one of the funniest moments. Like, again, even if you have no idea what it is, just because because John Sim is so serious as he says it. So. Um, um, that I think that I think was something that they did they did really well, um, and yeah, I, I you know just just in general, like I think that they they had they did a good job of um, sort of you know uh, depicting uh, Manchester. Um, that's a city that's that's where my parents both went to school. That's where they they met um, and spent the first uh, nine or so years of their married life together in Manchester. So. Oh, I have some connection with it. I mean, I've only visited it once and obviously not in 1973, but I, I think that there's a, there's a great sense of a city that is, um, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a bad way is struggling. Um, and you know, I think again, just that sense of place in, in 1973 is, is a real achievement for, for life on Mars in, in a way that is not just like, let's do an old fashioned cop show. Let, like, let's also try to speak to like what the world was like in that long ago time. Yeah, definitely. The, it, it does feel, and that's part of why it does feel so vibrant as compared to when, when they're going back into the present and the, it's very easy for them to have the, 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 the present feel bland because they have created such a vibrant uh, setting for the rest of the show. Um, well, any other final thoughts yeah, I just do want to just quickly um, mention the fact that the show has been remade not once, a couple times actually. There was the American show, which is honestly uh, only worth um, looking up because it had the most psychotic um, ending um, just in like history. Just like Google the plot synopsis. Google the plot synopsis or watch the final plot synopsis. Like, let's just put it like this: there's mention of a President Obama, and it's not Barack. That's the kind of ending that it is. It's like. It was such a clear, like, we're getting canceled. 
fuck everyone ending and it's um, and it's just it's so psychotic it's got maybe the cheesiest david bowie reference in in revealing um the, the actual name of the gene hunt character in that show who's played by harvey keitel um in the main series although he was played by Meany in the uh, original pilot that then got remade and which when they recast him uh, I instantly uh, lost any interest in the remake because I write hard for Deep Space Nine and <laughs> Chief O'Brien. Um, the other thing that I will say, and I actually have, I've never seen this obviously because I don't watch a lot of Russian television or any Russian television, but they did a Russian remake of this that ran for one season um, and is really interesting because it's called Dark Side of the Moon because apparently David Bowie was not known at all in 70s Russia, but like Pink Floyd had a big underground following. And um, the kind of fun thing about this is, is obviously like, uh, to have someone like fall, like get into a coma in 2000s era Russia, they don't wake up in Russia. They wake up in the Soviet Union, um, which seems like an even like stronger premise for it. And and one of the fun things that they mention is like they had to completely invert the character dynamics because like a cop like Gene Hunt, like a corrupt cowboy like cop, wouldn't last in the soviet union so the straight-laced cop has to be the one in the 1970s and like the bad boy roguish corrupt cop has to be the one from modern day russia so which again seems deeply plausible based on everything i know about russia but um so i just wanted to let people know that dark side of the moon exists and i don't know whether there's a subtitled version floating around but i actually would be kind of fascinated to see it because i watched the russian language only uh promo for it in preparation for this and i was like this is this is amazing. Like I really I this is if I'm going to watch one Russian television series, I'm going to watch the Russian remake of Life on Mars. Um it it looked kind of awesome. So I just wanted to let people know that that is out there and it exists. And also um Ashes to Ashes. Um definitely worth checking out especially if you just love Gene Hunt, particularly like season 2 Gene Hunt where he's really just starting to feel his essential Gene Huntiness. Um definitely not as deep a show as Life on Mars, um but does some really interesting strange things. Um not to give too much away, but Satan may or may not be a supporting character in the final season, so it definitely goes into some interesting places. It's worth checking out in that. Uh, was the longer running of the two, and it still only ran 24 episodes. So um, definitely worth giving a look if you really liked Life on Mars. Yeah, that Russian version sounds fascinating. I really want to see that now. Like that, like, like, I mean, Ashes to Ashes is fine, but like Dark Side of the, like, that is such a fascinating premise for a show. Yes. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? The AV Club is the predominant place to check out my work. A bunch of shows that I'm reviewing at the moment, uh, most of which we've discussed here. Gravity Falls, Bob's Burgers, Arrow. The only one we've not discussed is a little show by the name of Doctor Who. Um, And that is because, uh, Kate, you joined me on the Debating Doctor Who podcast this week which uh, to to sub in for usual co-host and friend of this podcast, Caroline Sita. Um, We recorded, I, I think, a really great episode. I was very happy with how it came out. It is uh, just as uh, long-winded and verbose as, as this episode, um, despite the fact we were only talking about one show. Um, but uh, that should that should be coming out. That's in the iTunes store. So you know um, we we've taken definitely more than our fair share of hiatuses, not unlike Doctor Who. Um, but uh, I think we're more or less back now and doing things. And yeah, so those are the two main places to check me out. And I have a very indifferently updated Twitter account that whenever I happen to write something that needs to be shared with people, I do vaguely pretend to to update that. So And uh, that is? 
at Alistair Wilkins. It's one of the joys of having this name. It's not hard to get uh, that tw- <laughs> like all the different like URLs and Twitter handles. As long as you can spell my name, which is a challenge, um, it's uh, it's all very findable. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's so that's that's my current web presence. Well, and you can reach out to me at the Televerse on Twitter, listeners. You can also email the Televerse at gmail dot com. You can find me over at Pop Optic, where I'm reviewing Doctor Who, and over at the AV Club, where I am reviewing Heroes Reborn and the Walking Dead podcast. Started up this week at Pop Optic, and of course, as you said, I was just on debating Doctor Who. So you can get my thoughts on those two episodes this week at those two lovely places. Um, and you can also find this uh, this show up at Pop Optic, and you can find it up in the iTunes Store, where we have an M. For a chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed, and you can always like us on Facebook to follow the podcast there and start up a conversation there as well. So, uh, look, thank you again for coming on to talk about the rest of TV with me, Elster. It's it's been a pleasure. I only wish that I could even slightly better match your encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of modern TV, but hopefully, uh, people have gotten something out of my um, the shows I do watch and and my willingness to just talk a little bit about those that I'm still catching up on. But it's it's been a pleasure, and it's always fun to um, share some life on Mars uh, love with with the world. And and again, I found out about Russian life on Mars because I went on this podcast. So so it's totally win. worth it. So worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, kid. <laughs> Thanks so much. And thank you all for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. 